Prior to 1900, the western United States comprised less than 5% of the country's total population. By 2000, that number had quadrupled to over 20%, and was on track to continue growing as a percentage of the total until only recently, where the southern states have begun outpacing it in terms of number of people added per year. Once known as the Great American Desert, the conquering of the West came not just from the Winchester repeating rifle and the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad, but also by fundamentally transforming the landscape with massive hydrological projects in places like Southern California and Arizona, which naturally have little water, and harnessing the massive power of rivers like the Columbia and the Pacific Northwest to generate electricity. As with any physical system, however, there are limits to growth, and with recent record-breaking droughts compounded by never-before-seen populations, the rapid pace of expansion in the western United States may be coming to a close. Tonight we discuss the often untold history of how that growth was enabled, and why it may no longer be set to continue. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time for Hello and welcome back to the myth of the 20th century. We actually have a 20th century topic uh, for once uh, to talk about. This was a topic actually suggested by a listener. I do not know if... Uh, this individual wishes to be named, but uh, you know who you are, and thank you for suggesting it. It's um, it's a book by the name of Cadillac Desert. It was, um, I think, republished, I think, in the early 90s, at least the version that I got a copy of, because it, it covers the history of the development of the western United States uh, around water. Uh, the western United States actually used to be called the Great American Desert before it was mapped out and explored in more detail by Lewis and Clark. Uh, it was considered uh, an uninhabitable area of the continent by the people who had developed the United States, at least on the eastern half of the, uh, of the country. And the Louisiana Purchase obviously uh, opened up a large frontier for the United States. But even after that, there was still sections that were controlled by uh, other countries, uh, Mexican um, territory. Uh, the British still hold, held, uh, well, they still call it British Columbia and Canada, but I think that reached actually down through Oregon. And so a lot of those territories were really not well understood, especially to Americans. But once those became part of the growing country, uh, these uh, areas were not clearly valuable because predominant uh, mode of uh, economic activity and sustaining oneself till 
probably the mid 1800s or late 1800s was agriculture. And so if you didn't have water, you really couldn't, couldn't live anywhere. And so this book is, is quite good. It's written by uh, a guy named Mark uh, Reisner. Uh, very good book. Uh, it, it goes into a lot of detail that you ordinarily wouldn't necessarily know about unless you had done some extensive uh, studying or had some knowledge based on your work. Uh, but it, it's not common knowledge to talk about the hydrological engineering of a vast section of the country because it's just uh, not a topic most people find intriguing. But uh, it, I'm, there's I'm, also not many uh, easily digestible books on this subject. Um, you know, in fact, there's maybe only a few. We did a show a couple of years ago on this on a similar element of this topic and um in my research at the time you know the only books that really came up were colossus which is the story of the uh the hoover dam project and some of its uh, wire projects on the colorado river um a sort of bizarre massive textbook uh that was about the history of large federal dam projects and and the book cadillac desert which we didn't touch on too much in that show. Um, but, you know, it's interesting when you actually try to look for uh, water. You're talking about the Hoover Dam episode, right? Yeah, 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 Hoover Dam episode. But, you know, when when you're looking for histories or easily digestible books on this topic, uh, you come across some blog posts, uh, articles from major news outlets in Cadillac Desert. There's no, uh, you know, sort of uh, wide-ranging history like this that's easily readable. Um, and I don't know why that is. It's, it's an incredibly important topic. Uh, it's, you know, basically a third of the, uh, of the country, uh, and to an extent parts of Canada and Mexico uh, are involved in this wider issue of uh, basically moving around natural sources of water from A to B. Uh, so, I mean, the, we can talk a little bit about the book itself. Uh, it's a very, um, I think you said right before we jumped on, it jumps around a lot. So if you're going to read it, you know, you do have to be prepared to jump back and forth, sometimes decades at a time, just between a paragraph or two, uh, talking about maybe a region or even different regions um, it's definitely, I think it was Mark Reisner's only book or first book. He, he was not a, like a prolific author. He didn't write that much. Um, so you can tell that there's a little bit of sort of, a uh, feeling around the edges of how to actually write this history. It's, it's not a, not a very academic history or textbook history. It's, it bounces around and a lot of it's from his perspective. He uses, you know, uh, from the first person perspective quite frequently and he's giving his opinions throughout the book. Uh, so it's, it's not exactly boring. It's actually really interesting to read and, and you do feel like it's an actual history told by a person. Uh, but it is a little challenging at times to get through due to the fact that it's not entirely well structured, but like I said, it's, it's, I think the only book on this topic that you can easily find. Uh, well, 
I, I don't I don't actually think he did a bad job in the organization. No, he did a great job. It, it's yeah. it's no, he did, and I think the challenge and I'm going to use the order of the book just because that's how I wrote my notes but it's um it's not confusing it's just sort of the nature of the the problem is that you have a vast territory over 100 plus years of history to cover and the question is how do you go about organizing it and I was discussing this with Hans about how are we going to talk about it? Are we going to do it chronologically, geographically? The book does both. And it also sort of groups things by themes. And it's really just, uh, I'm recognizing that if you went in chronological order, for example, you'd have to move around geographically constantly because many things are happening contemporaneously throughout the territory. And so you're, you're going to have that sort of, discontinuity and then you're gonna if you did it geographically uh you would have to go from the beginning to the end in that section's chronology and then jump over and then go back in time again uh to another territory's time which, which doesn't work because you do have water in in projects moving between regions or between states yeah. between different municipalities between different uh sort of communal organizations and then government organizations there's also a huge uh, there's a tremendous amount of uh, private interests involved in these water projects something that's very stark and you mentioned at the beginning you know sort of you had all these different uh, either colonial empires or the american and mexican empires uh, acquiring this territory or trying to map it out and none of them really had any clue what was what was going on there? You know, there was very sparse uh, Amerindian population, uh, and the, you know the area had been somewhat uh, understood, perhaps by Jesuit monks and Franciscan monks, but their influence had really waned tremendously, and their knowledge had not exactly been well imparted onto everyone else. So you do have you have a lot of private interests who effectively fund their own expeditions. They fund their own uh, sort of uh, crude infrastructure in the 19th century. And parts of the book effectively revolve around these private interests, often just single persons who are massively influential. So it, it, it's challenging because you do have uh, – there is no sort of singular uh, expansion. It's not as if the federal government had a, had a plan even <laughs> – there, you know, what's striking about a lot of these projects in the book is that there was no plan. There were there was lots of people with their own plans, and it was sort of uh, it, well, it was sort of. I think I think to, that's true for yeah. just about every point in history, unless yeah. you are living in a centrally planned exactly. society. Exactly. And what's what's interesting is that uh, you know I was thinking uh, you read a book about perhaps the expansion of the Roman Empire. And into a certain area, let's say Britain. And you, you have a couple sources. You have the uh, you know, contemporary Roman sources, and you have Roman sources who are then reviewing maybe histories written by other Roman authors, which may have been lost, and giving their perspective on it. And then you have ar archaeological findings. And you kind of piece together a sort of idea 
of what was going on in the Roman expansion into Britain. But you don't have firsthand accounts. You don't have interviews. You can't then go talk to the children of the people involved in this, perhaps, uh, which I think Reisner did pretty extensively. You can't uh, review uh, sort of dense Roman government records. Uh, you can't review riparian rights. You, you know, there's there's so much more material now. So it it gives this perspective of how it, uh, the the expansion of uh, hydrological infrastructure in the American West is very multifaceted and uh, very revolutionary, but not cohesive. And I think that will you know we look back on something even as what you know. Uh, somewhat well documented perhaps is the Roman expansion to Britain, but we view it as just the Roman expansion. The Romans, we have some details about maybe the people involved and the interests at hand, but all we, we think of it sort of broadly as the Romans expanded. This is what they did. Eventually it fell apart. They left. But with this, we have massive quantities of data. We have huge quantities of primary source material and in fact, you can talk to the children and grandchildren of the people involved or who were involved in these projects. Uh, and to this day, I think that uh, you can maybe even find an old timer or two, probably in their 90s, who are still living in you know, maybe the Owens Valley uh, that could give you an account of some sort of the, the, the very detailed minutia of perhaps the riparian rights drama in um, in California or you know like these smaller issues that are touched on in the book well if, if you live in a farming region of the country uh, water rights are still a big issue and they're oh, actually yeah. uh, they're kind of baked into the legal codes of the region where some people have water rights and they they actually do kind of somewhat ridiculous things to protect them because they are arguably heavily subsidized uh and we'll get into sort of how that goes about uh with the construction of irrigation systems and dams and storage reservoirs but uh, if you got them and you don't use them typically they they sort of go away and so a lot of people will will sort of do these semi uh, insane appearing things just to keep them because just in case or somebody else might want them, you know, and so they have market value effectively, even though they're not really market, uh, true market entities. But, uh, in any case, um, Hans mentioned the Owens Valley. We'll get to that also in a yes. bit. Um, I wanted to do, cause you're mentioning, you know, the, the different entities involved in this stuff. Uh, I wanted to start off with talking about the uh, the Mormon expansion into the uh, the West. Uh, it was obviously concentrated yeah. in Utah, but it was also throughout uh, that region: Nevada, um, uh, even California, Idaho, Idaho uh, Arizona. Uh, a lot of the uh, the Bundys are sort of in that in that region. If you remember all the sort of uh, Oregon, Eastern Oregon, the Milhier wildlife protest from the Obama end of the Obama era. Um, a lot of that is so, sort of related to this and, and how the Mormons basically, it was, um, it was Brigham Young, I think who basically saw Utah as the promised land, partly because nobody else wanted to live there. Um, and the statistic the book gives about a comparison between 
Reno, which is in Nevada, but it's sort of, you get the idea because Nevada is actually the driest state, but Utah is not too far behind. Um, he says that, uh, Reisner says that Reno gets seven inches of precipitation a year. That includes snow and rain. Uh, and in parts of Louisiana, you get that in a day uh, on occasion. And obviously it doesn't rain every day in Louisiana, but I think the point is that if you are in arguably the most fertile area of the country, which is pretty much the South, uh, in terms of just rainfall, uh, mm -hmm. and temperatures, um, doesn't mean the land is, is necessarily workable because it's very heavily grown because of all that, uh, natural, uh, fertility. Uh, you... This brings up a, a really good point, by the way, that is touched on slightly in the book. Uh, yeah, I think Reiser mentions that uh, the United States had a great deal of accumulated knowledge on hydrological engineering and irrigation control, uh, building canals, basically the management of water. But the problem was on the eastern seaboard into the south, even into the Midwest, there's too much water. In fact, there's there's a ridiculous amount of water in some regions, uh, the Carolinas in particular, and it was so cumbersome to you know everybody realized that this this could be a great fertile farmland. Um, we could settle people here. We could do all kinds of things with this land, but by God, it, it's a giant marsh, or it's a giant, or it's a series of giant rivers, or uh, in parts of New England, the snowmelt is insane. And it's too difficult to expand into some of these mountain regions of uh, New Hampshire, for example, for that reason. So we, you know, the country had built up lots of accumulated knowledge in this realm about how to, how to deal with water, how to move it. But nobody had ever encountered a problem of what happens if you don't actually have water in some region. Uh, that, that was never an issue for the American civilization. Yeah, from the founding, uh, you know, and arguably the early 17th century all the way to the late 19th century when, you know, there's these grand visions of expanding into the, the Great Basin and into the rock, past the Rockies and into the, you know, the Southwest. Nobody knew how to deal with this. And there were no great water projects done on this scale, arguably in human history. There were some that were performed in perhaps uh, Roman North Africa. And there were some that had been performed by colonial empires to an extent in the deserted regions of the Middle East. But, uh, and perhaps the Soviet Union would later uh, experiment with this sort of uh, you know, water or hydrological engineering projects in Central Asia, which they completely botched arguably and destroyed a you know, massive amount of land and a whole sea and, and so forth. But nobody had quite, uh, you know, had to deal with this particular issue yet of we have arguably a thousand miles of territory here. There's no, <laughs> there's no great water source. There's some rivers, there's underground aquifers. They are hard to control. Well, they when you say a thousand miles, that's the diameter. It's not the area. Okay, the, so it's, it's bigger have, than that. Have, basically, okay, is what we have I'm a saying. region of roughly a thousand miles from the from the Rockies to the Pacific, give or take. Okay, and in most of it, not a lot of water, or there there is water, 
but it's hard to control. Well, let's say it's a let's say it's a million square miles, sure. roughly, because you know Chile is a thousand miles long, but you know it's a it's a strip. But sure. the 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 scale is really important here. Yeah. This is a huge so maybe, area. Maybe I'm I'm actually underselling the scale of the of the of the problem here. And the United States acquires this territory and has like absolutely no idea what to do with it. And uh, particularly after the defeat of the Mexican Empire, uh, we when we took this territory, you know what we were really interested in was just having access to the Pacific Coast. Having all this desert and these weird mountains and this scrubland uh, was totally uninteresting. And the idea was just to have a series of railroads that took you from the Midwest to the Pacific. And everything in between, if it could be settled, possibly, it, it would be. But the idea of having massive projects in these areas, cities in this area, millions of people living in this area was uh, insane. Nobody would have ever thought it was possible simply because there's no water. And when there is water, it's uncontrollable. The flash floods kill people, destroys any attempted agriculture. And then it goes back to a 15-year, 20-year, 30-year drought or low river levels that are difficult to work with. All right. So I was uh, I was mentioning the Mormons and they're they're basically in territories that are inhospitable to most people, and that was that was sort of a feature, not a bug, to Brigham Young and his ilk, because uh, they were trying to get away from other Americans, basically, and set up their own own space. And so what they what they ended up doing was, uh, and if you go to Utah, this this culture still exists. Actually, uh, they started building these storage reservoirs in the mountains to capture snowmelt. Uh, and if you go to Salt Lake City, you know, obviously the the lake is not not drinkable. It's it's extremely salty, more so than the ocean, actually. Uh, so it's it's useless, and you have to be very careful about how you use water. Uh, and today, it's obviously easier because you have uh, pipes you can weld together, and uh, you have construction equipment and all this stuff, but they were using picks and shovels back in the day and, and buckets and building earth dams and things like that. And, uh, if you ever try to control water, especially when things are variable in terms of the rainfall and things can flood and overflow, uh, you have to be very careful and plan things correctly and, uh, things can go wrong. And so, in any case, they, they did this and they managed to figure it out and they became extremely adept at managing water. And so lo and behold, when the United States set up the Bureau of Reclamation, I don't know when exactly that was, but let's just say it was um, around, you know, some somewhere in the progressive era slash FDR time, uh, the idea was to manage and harness uh all these resources in the west in particular and take advantage of it and provide value to farmers um and actually during um california's boom i should say the uh the west coast the san francisco area was actually sort of 
not very desirable uh, in terms of just its its rainfall. It didn't get very much um, rain except for a couple of months during the year. Uh, but because of the gold boom, uh, there was a tremendous amount of people that were showing up there. Uh, it became extremely important for places like that to eventually uh, get a an influx of water. And so California is a whole different topic. We'll, we'll get to that. But uh, it was um, it was the Mormons who actually became instrumental in leading the Bureau of Reclamation to build these irrigation systems under the aegis of the, the federal government. And the book talks a lot about the Bureau. Uh, there are other players. Obviously, there are individual farmers who set up their own uh, irrigation canals and uh, little little dams, but the the big projects are are really a domain that has, to this day, still been predominated by uh, large governments. Uh, there are there are some state projects that that come about uh, Arizona and California in particular because of the opportunities provided by uh, agriculture. And in the case of Arizona, it was the Colorado River that was was really untapped uh, and effectively being uh, divvied up by other states that were connected to it. But it was um, it was the federal government that was involved, in, and so Mormons played a, a big role in the early days because of their experience. And um, I, I should also mention that there were some interesting incentives set up by the federal government that were akin to the Homestead Act in the sort of 1800s for developing the Midwest of the United States, there were a, a variety of um, incentives given out. There was a, something called the Desert Lands Act and tangentially the Timber and Stone Act, which effectively were attempts to get people to populate this area. It was, it was something that was thought of as basically a, a political and economic strategy for the nation to try to get settlement, uh, white settlement in particular with, uh, some remnants of, you know, native Americans being in these areas. Uh, it was kind of a viewed as a strategy to, to solidify the control of this part of the country by encouraging people to, to go out there. And the desert lands act, I think in particular was interesting because, it was in the context of what we're talking about today. It was used by some, let's just say, um, creative accountants to acquire massive amounts of land, really on on the sly, uh, at the expense of the government. It was um, there was an example given that in the San Joaquin Valley, uh, one million acres went to a particular farmer uh, because there was a clause in this act that said that if you, if you irrigated some land, uh, you, you had the rights to it. It's sort of like, it's unbelievable. I mean, the United the history of the United States is so unique because it's a new country, but also it was, it was on a, it's on a part of uh, land that really just didn't have that many people. And so there are so many cases where the development of the United States really had to do with people just showing up. It's quite, quite unusual for, I think, a lot of human history, and unless you go really far back. But uh, in the old world, as they say, that just wasn't the case. You had, to, you had to 
kill somebody basically if you wanted their land. Um, and that was sort of true in the United States, but just the density of people was not very high. And so you could stake a claim literally and then own, uh, a million acres in San Joaquin Valley in what has now become one of the most valuable pieces of real estate on the planet. So I don't think the guy really necessarily foresaw that, but what he did was, um, there were all these dumb loopholes, like I said, and if you, if you irrigated it and you lived on it, you could, you could get it. So what, what did this guy do or what did other people like him do? Well, they would, uh, they would find somebody who is a little bit, uh, loose with the truth, uh, to act as a witness and, they would basically attest to the fact that this person developed the land by irrigating it and building a homestead on it. So if it rained, for example, if it rained a lot, uh, some people would interpret that as irrigation, which is obviously not what irrigation is. Uh, building a homestead. Some people put, uh, cause there was, a, there was these like acreage limits to the amount of places you could have, but somehow this guy like had multiple versions of this uh you you you'd have to build a homestead on i think it was about 300 acres and that was considered like uh the goal because they wanted a lot of people as well not just one guy owning everything so one of the ways they did that was they encouraged people they had to live there uh, so that that develops the population so again you have these somewhat unscrupulous people and people who basically are just uh, corrupt and they they just they're willing to take a bribe to act as a witness. But one of these guys, he built a birdhouse on the, uh, on the land and, and his witness said that that was his house. His, uh, I mean, it is a house, right? But, uh, not his home. So there were a lot, there was a lot of chicanery. There was an estimate that 95% of the land acquired, uh, under this act was fraudulent. Uh, so there, there was a whole lot of, uh, that going on back in the day. And a lot of the uh, agricultural wealth, I think, in this region is probably inherited from people who did things like that. It's an interesting element of uh, of history. Land speculation is arguably uh, the oldest American pastime. It it really you know it, they were handing out flyers at Ellis Island for this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, and there were there were a lot of. Um, uh, sort of, I think we would call them now like con artists, uh, snake oil salesman types. There was a great deal of salesmanship that went into advertising smaller plots of land. And arguably it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy the, that you're going to go here. It's going to be paradise. We'll have everything you need, everything you want. Now, in the first groups of people, you know, not the large landowners or the large interests or the railroad interests or the mining interests, but the small families and smaller groups, when they first showed up, there were there were farms to be had in some areas. There were small irrigation projects they could accomplish, but largely they were sold uh, a bill of goods, and eventually, all these people in this region. Uh, through a survival instinct and American federal policy and larger strategy to actually settle this area for bigger interests, 
made it into a paradise, made it into a place you could actually live and settle in. But the first generation or two of those that actually settled these areas uh, lived very difficult lives. And they had effectively been tricked into it. It worked out in the end. But if you were the poor schmuck that bought or it was sold territory in Southern California or Central Arizona, parts of Nevada, uh, man, when you first got there and you realized what you had actually acquired, it must have been, you know, sort of a heart-wrenching moment because you had been tricked. And you made this incredible journey out there and uh, and it was all for naught, or so you thought. But those people did eventually figure out how to build, you know, sort of a modern civilization out of literally nothing, uh, you know, actual tracts of wasteland, desert in some areas. Yeah, no question about it. So where do we, where do we start? Um, I mentioned... You know, there's there's a couple of uh, contextual things to understand. I mean, when when a water project is considered, a lot of it is, especially from the government's point of view, there, there's a lot of politics, obviously, and some of it has to do with individual congressmen or senators wanting to uh, basically have a project under their belt, and they, they want to have something that they can point to for their district uh, that is um, something that will keep them elected and a lot of that is um, involving obviously when they go back to Washington a lot of horse trading uh, back scratching mutually uh, so it's it's not it's not a case of there's some sort of um, wizard who foresees the the greater good and it's like a, a big math equation and it's sort of like a Goss plan style Soviet union, you know, we're going to measure the, the optimal uh, allocation of uh, units of production here. And then we're going to get this much production out from this. And then we're going to be able to put that back into some other component of the economy. It's, it's not that complicated. It's really just, there's various interests that, have a particular case to be made. And frankly, a lot of this stuff is developed based on the backs of uh, charismatic individuals. Um, it's, it's, there's, it's just the American system of kind of uh, salesmanship, I guess. I, I don't really know how else to compare it. It's, it's not super scientific. Um, so I'm trying to sort of pattern out how this all happened. And there really are just a lot of individual characters that, that had a vision. Um, and I think a lot of that comes comes from you know population patterns where you have uh, groups of people who have, for whatever multitude of reasons, shown up in an area, and then there are uh, opportunities to be had. Business people see opportunities, uh, politicians see opportunities, farmers see opportunities, and they all kind of coordinate and and lobby and then eventually get something pulled off. And it's really complicated and difficult. And so the people that can actually achieve these things, um, I take my hat off to them because it's, it's not an easy process. We, we don't live in a authoritarian system. In other words, it's really, it's a very, um, 
messy and confusing morass of people arguing and vying for position. And uh, yes. I don't necessarily think that's bad. It, it obviously uh, is it's it's time consuming and some would view it as inefficient but uh it might be effective in some ways because the the openness of having that debate hopefully uh cleans out a lot of the um the errors that might come from one central authority never having anyone challenge it and our system is very um argumentative <laughs> by contrast. And so right. a lot, a lot of people can, uh, get, get their, their say in, and obviously not everybody has an equal say, but it's, um, it's, it's a fascinating system that is, um, it, it's, it's interesting just to, just to look at it. Uh, did you want to jump in? I was going to kind of try to transition to one of the first sections of the book that focuses on, um, the development of Los Angeles, but, uh, yeah, well, I just wanted to, to add. So in this period, um, starting in the, uh, basically after the civil war, uh, and into the 1880s, all the way into the 19 knots, there were two advantages that helped, uh, accelerate the development, particularly of the dams in the West, but all the associated infrastructure, Number one, the United States had uh, started to undergo its sort of uh, second industrial revolution. So there was a great deal of mechanical engineering or advancements in mechanical engineering, in metallurgy, in chemical engineering that made this possible. Uh, there was also a great deal of work done. Uh, well, what, what's, 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 the, what's the chemical engineering component here? I'm curious. So the ability to uh, like let's cement. say, <laughs> yeah, and well, not just not just quantities of cement, but uh, for example, uh, uh, manufacturing, let's say, large pieces of uh, metal pipes uh, that were galvanized mm. or could resist corrosion, could resist a variety of environmental factors out in the West. Um, I, there were there were a series of chemicals also uh, pioneer I'm blinking on the name that I believe were utilized to help stabilize uh, sort of in a lot of these areas the sort of uh, sandy uh, formless soil or really dirt uh, where a lot of these pipes were eventually laid so that they could actually crack you know they could create sort of a smooth hardened surface of the ground they could actually lay these pipes on top of them so they wouldn't shift too much. There were lots of these advancements that made all of this possible. Um, additionally, the ability to actually get products from A to B, we had built out a massive railroad network. And a lot of the land rights that would eventually be turned into riparian rights or water rights, um, and a lot of the, some of the infrastructure built around them was actually a product of the railroad companies all the way into the 1890s who had decided that they needed to build you know small way stations they needed to build even small towns to help repair pieces of rail infrastructure along the way to the pacific and in order to facilitate that you needed uh sort of small amounts of irrigation you need to get water into these areas 
but we had this massive transportation infrastructure. We could move huge amounts of stone, metal, and people to these areas. We could move pack mules even. A lot of, a lot of this was actually done with uh, the initial infrastructure was made with pack mule teams. Uh, we could move them to these areas. Number two, there was a huge amount of advancements in sort of bureaucracy and statecraft um, and sort of communal management of resources. Starting in the 1870s, all the way up to this period, and the United States government got very good at building sort of uh, organized, smart departments of people, whether it was at the state level, the local community level, or at the federal level, like the Bureau of Reclamation, which starts in 1902. So you you have this real sort of cohesive culture of how do we manage large projects, how do we make sure all the political players involved are satisfied. How do we get a huge amount of bureaucracy, whether it's just printing little pieces of paper or managing, you know, sort of land rights usage, all of these problems that you do have to deal with. Uh, it requires smart, effective uh, state organizations for the most part. And the United States had gotten very good at that. It had, you know, after the Civil War, had really expanded out the federal government's power. Uh, so these are the sort of the primary advantages that made this possible. And by that time, the Mexican Empire was gone. The British were gone. The Amerindians were uh, sort of uh, just an infinitesimal amount of the population. There was no one else around. So there was a lot of ability to be flexible. You didn't have to worry about uh, sort of uh, defensive posture. You didn't have to worry about raids or any of these things you could just build and you could just sort of imagine uh, new projects all the time. There was no real disadvantages. Uh, there were no external problems to deal with other than maybe lack of water to, you know, uh, keep people alive while they're working out in the middle of nowhere. But that was really it. So th these advantages made all of this possible. And that it kind of takes us into the, like you said, the first part of the book, which deals with Southern California and uh, and the Los Angeles uh, water projects. Yeah, so I mentioned uh, the the burgeoning population in uh, San Francisco being largely a result of the gold rush. Uh, there were uh, there were so many people showing up there. This is a story I may not have uh, retold. I've heard it before obviously from others, but it was, uh, very, very telling. There was such an influx into that part of California because of the, the lust for gold that, uh, the ships that people had taken into the Harbor, which by the way, is an excellent, excellent Harbor. It's considered arguably the best one on the West coast. And so it, it is sort of a natural, uh, place for people to show up. There's so many people, uh, coming on ships, uh, to mine for gold prospect that uh, they didn't have any pa enough passengers going back and it was uneconomical to keep the ships around. And so what they did is they, I don't know if they dynamited them, but they basically sunk them into the, the Harbor area around the peninsula of San Francisco to create Bayfill for construction. <laughs> and so they were, they were just, they, they were, they were these, these are like the version of the one way U-Hauls out of California now, um, uh, that many people are talking about. It was sort of the opposite, uh, back, back during the 1850s when gold was, uh, 
attracting so many people. But in any case, uh, meanwhile, in the southern part of the state, which had become a state basically because of gold, uh, Los Angeles was sort of this sleepy, I guess, former Spanish mission town that really didn't have a lot of people because it just didn't have any water. If you go to Los Angeles, it's this gigantic place. And it's uh, today it's very smoggy, but if you can imagine before the internal combustion engine created all that, um, it's this massive basin surrounded by mountains on basically three sides and then the ocean. And for whatever reason, uh, those mountains don't really precipitate much water. Uh, it's just, I don't know if they, the clouds go around it or the snow, I guess it's, it, there's not enough snow cause it's too hot. And so the place is just, um, it's a desert basically. And so when people started going there, they, you know, made a go at whatever limited, uh, you know, water they could find. A lot of it was actually from wells. Uh, and the invention of well technologies, uh, over the years has actually opened up a lot of land. Uh, but the problem with, uh, well water, especially in a place like, uh, Los Angeles is when you start tapping into the well, uh, what you have to do is you, you, you dig down or drill down, depending on how you're building the well, typically very deep if it's an arid area, and you discover an aquifer. Well, an aquifer is basically just rainwater that has leaked down through the soil uh, and then found an area where it can't leak any further. Typically, it's held up by, by rock, bedrock. And so this stuff accumulates over time, but if you live in an arid region it's going to take a long time because you're not getting that much rain every year. And so if you start tapping it and start growing plants and vegetables and trees, like you do in a, in a nicer, more, uh, precipitated area, you're going to deplete the aquifer. And that's what was happening. Uh, so this was not sustainable. The, the groves of whatever they were growing back then, I, eventually they got into oranges, but, the initial farming of the area, it, it was quickly realized because you could see, you know, when you, when you go down to the well and water starts coming up when you've, you've dug, um, and you start tapping it, the water eventually will start dropping. So then you have to dig deeper and then deeper and then deeper and then deeper. So th this p pattern was apparent to people that this was not going to be good. And so if anybody's ever been to Los Angeles or seen the movie Mulholland Drive, uh, this particular individual is very instrumental in uh, the uh, the development of water. Um, I want to say Bill Mulholland, but I, I don't remember. It's it's basically Mulholland in my memory. And he was um, he was involved in the sort of early days of the boom of Los Angeles, and he was uh, basically the city's water engineer. And the place that they picked for transporting water to the city is this place called Owens Valley. And it's not exactly right over the next hill. It's actually 250 miles away, sort of uh, northeast from the uh, Los Angeles basin up in the Sierras. And when you go there, uh, there, there is snow. Uh, it's at 4,000 feet. And you can see, you know, on the mountains, there's, there's quite a bit of uh, water stored up on the, um, in the snow melt or the, the snowpack. And then when it melts, it goes into the, the river. And I don't remember the natural outlet of the river, but the history of Los Angeles is basically one of, uh, 
destroying ecosystems uh, afar <laughs> in order to uh, irrigate and uh, quench the thirst of the residents of Los Angeles. And Mono Lake, for example, is uh, one example of it. Um, if you've ever seen the movie High Plains Drifter with Clint Eastwood, very good movie. He's in a town called Lago, which means lake in Italian. And uh, it's basically it's filmed at Mono Lake. And Mono Lake is basically a it's this disgusting salt basin that used to actually be uh, more fresh and more lush with life, but it's, it's now got these really weird salt spires that stick up and there's nothing living in it. <laughs> this, this is actually a common, it, this is brought up multiple times in the book as a result of a lot of these water projects in the West, the salinity levels in many uh, reservoirs or naturally occurring uh, lakes or aquifers or rivers uh, shifts wildly from where they were before. And in some cases, you end up having uh, entire uh, river valleys that are that have a salinity level that is 36, I think, at one point times higher than what it used to be. And this effectively kills uh, any usage of that water for agriculture, for irrigation without desalination plants. So one of the problems of building out this infrastructure that you eventually notice is that it often requires more infrastructure to deal with problems created by expanding it in the first place, whether it's erosion, uh, whether it's building support structures, whether it's building uh, roads and uh, warehouses to store equipment to and from these uh, uh, canals or aqueducts. Uh, or uh, desalination plants to deal with shifting levels of salinity. Um, and uh, I think that there were a lot of other minerals at one point, like selenium, that hit just astronomical levels after they start moving water around. Uh, because they're moving water between bodies of water, by the way, that have never or that have not been connected uh, effectively in hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years potentially. So you're dealing with uh, different ecosystems, you're dealing with just entirely different ecological biomes, uh, and, and that often involves different levels of uh, mineral concentrations. Uh, so suddenly, there's just a massive amount of problems, and uh, a lot of these weren't addressed until the 1970s and the 1980s. Um, and uh, so you can, you can imagine the... You know, but in like 1910, 1915, when they start realizing what's going on, you know, just the technology at the time didn't really allow them to do anything about it. So there were uh, entire agricultural regions, small but you know flourishing, in Arizona and in California and other areas that were destroyed uh, by by these projects because the the composition of the the mineral levels in the water just changed dramatically from what it had been historically. Yeah. And w when you're doing these things, it's always important to, I think, weigh the pros and cons of different right. projects. I, I don't, I don't necessarily know what the book's overall thesis was. I didn't, there is no thesis. I, I didn't really, I mean, he kind of, at the end, he's sort of like, you know, Oh, we've forsaken the future of our children by building, all of these projects, but at the same time, he sort of admits that like a lot of those children wouldn't exist without these projects because the, there wouldn't be water for them. So I, it, it, there's no real coherent take on like good or bad. But what I would say is that um, 
there's trade-offs in any decision in the real world, not fantasy world. And you have to look at what do these projects do that are good and what do these projects do that are bad? And as a society, as a decision maker, whatever, you, you, you have to put them both on the scales. So I, I don't, I don't think it's, it's right to sort of fixate on, Oh, this is so awful. Or I'm not saying you're doing that, but I know a lot of people do, um, you know, hydroelectric dams, for example, I want to get into that. I mean, a lot of people say that they destroyed salmon fisheries and just true. I mean, it's like unarguable. Like you could look at the, the, the fish population sizes and compare, uh, and obviously fishing, you know, overfishing has a lot to do with that too. But, uh, in any case, um, just a quick example yet, you know, you have benefits from these projects too. A lot of electricity, flood control, et cetera. Um, you know, irrigation water, um, drinking water, so that's just sort of put back out there to anybody who's sort of unsure about these things. Uh, you can't make a blanket judgment. A lot of these projects really have different characteristics and different quantities in terms of the costs and benefits. So that, that's all I'm going to say about that, you know, as a sort of take. I, I don't, I'm not pro or con anything. It's really just, okay, well, it depends. Um, and if something is good on balance, it's probably worth doing in my book, but the, um, example of like Mono Lake is cause I've been there. It's, it's quite amazing. Like just to see it and how much impact humans can have on our, on our, our planet. It's unarguable that we can definitely wreck things. Um, but I also wanted to mention that the, uh, the United States is not, it's not unique in this. A lot of people in, I guess the left, I guess, like to beat up on the United States. Like it's some sort of singular force of evil. And I, I think that's ridiculous. Um, I mean, the amount of shit that China has been doing is probably eclipsed the United States by now. Uh, and <laughs> uh, we'll get into that maybe later. But, yeah. I mean, um, you know, like I, like I brought up the Roman example earlier. Um, and I promise this will be the last time we, we go on these tangents folks, but you know, any any uh, effective, important empire is going to engage in ecological engineering in its periphery. And for good or for bad, the ultimate goal is enhancing the quality of human life. You know, say... Uh, that's with, not generally the no, case it, it it's it, in case in some cases but i think other cases, cases it's you, it's done for you, power you want also to settle you want people to settle these areas and you can't tell them you're going to go live in an inhospitable desert and our strategy is to have a series of uh lengthy railroad networks that will bring you food occasionally dried goods and you're going to subsist out there with your family on these goods indefinitely. Now, that is not high quality of living. That's uh, ridiculous. That was the plan initially, by the way, for how these areas in the in the Great Basin and the West were going to be where people were going to live there. Uh, there's just no way. Uh, why, why would you do that? Lots of these products, like the Mulholland uh, sort of. Uh, persona, the persona of Mulholland, 
in his in his quest to build the infrastructure to bring water to uh, the uh, coastal cities of California, particularly Los Angeles. It was to enhance the quality of human life there. It was to make L.A. into a big garden. It was so people could live fulfilling, uh, high-quality lives with every amenity that they truly needed. They could expand civilization. They could have their own industry. They could have families. They could have a reliably uh, safe, uh, constant stream of food and water and, and so forth. That was That was it. So... For, you know, people judge, come back and make these moral judgments, which the book doesn't really do necessarily. It, it, it does take sort of a high-level helicopter view of a lot of these projects and people. Uh, you just, you really have to boil it back down to it. It's for better or for worse, it, it is a humanitarian endeavor. I mean, it, you know, the whole thing is destroying environments and uh, engaging in massive engineering too create more people and make the people already there happier okay. now oftentimes that you weigh you do have sort of the utilitarian thing where the people of the owens valley for example and these smaller communities along the colorado that are basically screwed um it's there's you know the, the thing is they're small there's small amounts of people we have big amounts of people to worry about we have to keep a million people in Southern California, uh, fed and washed and hydrated. Uh, sorry, that was sort of the the general idea. So when people make these moral judgments, but ultimately, I see a lot of this as a a, a giant humanitarian endeavor, and for better or for worse, that's what it was. So I don't disagree if we define our terms uh, in mathematics. When you say generally, that means all cases. Uh, colloquially, however, when you say generally, it means most cases, not all. And I would most cases generally agree that. Let's go with the colloquial definition. The the water projects were for benefiting the populations in those regions. However, what I would say is that there are exceptions to that. That have more to do with local politicians wanting something to do or a business or, or special interest having an advantage. Uh, some of these projects didn't return uh, their investment costs, for example. Um, so they were basically just pork barrel spending for construction firms, for example. Uh, a lot of the big dams going up in the authoritarian states, and including the United States, uh, were built for power. You know, not just electricity, but just to increase the strength of the overall country, not necessarily the individuals in that particular area. Uh, we'll talk about the Grand Coulee Dam, for example, and the role that played in World War II. So it's not in all cases for you know the local guy or the community. It's sometimes there's other players uh, who actually benefit disproportionately, and they actually don't even return necessarily the cost of the investment, which uh, we can get into later. But I, I, I don't disagree with the overall idea that some of these projects at least are good. Uh, I generally like uh, in building, you know, large systems, seeing them built and 
with the obvious caveat that they have to be beneficial. Um, I think that's civilization, but I don't think it's fair to say that it's just about helping people. I think some of these things are, are more complicated than that. But anyway, we'll, we'll go through more examples and, um, I think that'll become clear. So let's finish up or at least start on Los Angeles. We haven't really got into it yet. Um, the, um, Owens Valley. So 250 miles away, snow capped mountains, 4,000 feet. Los Angeles is basically at sea level. So the, the reason Mulholland looked at this place and said, Hey, this is going to be great is, um, it's got water, obviously. Uh, unfortunately it's far, <laughs> far away, but I guess that's about, about the closest place he could find that was within the engineering constraints of the time doable as a source in terms of like the quantity was sufficient. It was estimated that you could, you could, uh, give, you know, 2 million people water from this place, which is extraordinary given that the, the little Valley was populated by farmers and there's maybe 10 to a hundred thousand at most in the area. I, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but it, it was disproportionately smaller than the potential that was going to be possible for the population of Los Angeles. So, you know, if you're the Soviet union, you would just roll in there with tanks and just tell people, you know, this is what it's going to be. Uh, and by the way, I was, going to mention in the Soviet Union, um, they, they decimated, uh, it's a very famous case, the Aral Sea, which was, uh, it's mentioned in the book, but he said it's like a Stalin era project. I don't think that's accurate. I think it's, um, it was after Stalin died in the fifties, this was developed in the sixties, but it was, it, it's actually today it's, uh, the lake or the sea, I should say it, um, it straddles the border of uh, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, which used to be part of the Soviet Union, obviously. And uh, they were wanted to grow cotton. And the lake, uh, total area of which is, uh, let's just say, 150 square, 150 by 150 uh, kilometers. I'm looking at the map right now. So square that, whatever that is. Um, 20,000 square kilometers or something. The thing shrank by 90, 95% because they, they basically drained it. Um, and there's a very famous picture. I used to read national geographic and there was a picture in, in the article of talking about it where there was this fishing boat that was just sitting on land and it used to be on water. Uh, and they basically, they, they took so much water out of the thing that the, the boat, ran aground and then now it looks like it's on it's on a desert somewhere which effectively is what it is so this happened in other places it wasn't just the united states <laughs> and uh okay so going back to owens uh, valley so maholland was uh looking at this four thousand feet high place and the advantage of the height is that because there's mountains in between the uh, Owens Valley and Los Angeles. In other words, you you can kind of go down from Owens Valley, but there's no there's no river that connects Owens Valley to Los Angeles. Otherwise, we wouldn't have this issue. It would just naturally irrigate. Uh, but you have to get around the mountains that are surrounding uh, Los Angeles. So how do you do that? Well, you have to. If you've ever run a you know gravity siphon, you basically notice that water flows downhill. And if you've got an obstruction that is, uh, let's say you, you take a hose or something and you, you, you have a tank on your roof and you put the hose in it, uh, 
and then you you run it down onto the ground uh how do you get the water out of that well typically tanks have holes at the top but if you have a tank a, a hole at the bottom it'll it'll just fall out right no no issues but if you have the, the hole at the top the water actually has to go up first and then go down that's actually what what they're dealing with in this situation you have to you go down from wherever the the tap is in the Owens Valley and then eventually in order to get it to Los Angeles you're going to have to crawl it back up over a hill or something like that as long as that that hill or that mountain range is lower than the starting point you can get the water above it as long as you have enough speed and momentum to overcome friction losses and stuff like that so they used systems of siphons uh, and probably a few pumps at the time, which were somewhat primitive when they were dealing with this compared to today. But that was the that was the the reason they picked this location because it was higher than all the the subsequent mountains that were in the way of uh, the starting point and the end point, which is Los Angeles. So you could you could build the siphon system. So in order to do this, Mulholland uh, had his team basically go up there and start buying ranches from unsuspecting ranchers and farmers. And it eventually became clear, but you know, if you live in a small town, you know, this. a lot of small town folk are not really up on the latest big city politics uh, maneuvering. Uh, eventually it became apparent what was going on, that Los Angeles was buying up the water rights. This wasn't clear what was happening though at the outset, and they didn't really reveal the reason why they were doing this. And it was uh, for the people that did ask, like, oh, we're not going to take that much. We're just sort of planning for the future. Well, eventually they built the thing uh, in the 1920s, and they they took so much water out that you know the river started started running out. Uh, and here's the thing though they they built the tap. They they built a an inlet pipe off the river and it was downstream from where all the farmers were. And so they were like, okay, well, you're still going to get water. Uh, whatever you send to us, we're just going to take. But the people below, I guess that started noticing that, you know, the river was, was drying up. And, and part of being in a community is that you, you don't just live on your house, you know, little acreage or whatever ranch acreage you've got. You, you have the surrounding and you consider that your home too. And so this this part of the the valley was was getting getting depleted of water, so people were getting pissed off, and uh, you know this was all done legally, okay? But if you've ever if you've ever looked at the financial system, uh, you know a lot of that stuff is legal, but is it right? You know a lot of this or uh, the tax code, there's a lot of loopholes, um, so people were upset, and there was actually a point where there was this, uh, they call it the California water wars as a part of a general thing. But in particular, the Owens Valley, people were dynamiting the, uh, the water taps that go into uh, Los Angeles because what Mulholland was doing was, and this also really rubbed people the wrong way. Uh, he wanted to replenish the aquifer that had been sucked up from all the farming going on there. And so what he was doing was because the initial population of Los Angeles was not like it is today where Hans, how many people live there? Like what? 10 million people total. I mean, there's a lot of people down there, um, but it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, in the LA. Me. Yeah. Like, I mean, California's 40 million total uh, LA, the uh, wider LA metro areas, 
12 million, 14 million. I guess it depends how you count the yeah, LA you metro got area. Empire, you got yeah, you have all the way, all the way down, all the way into Santa Barbara. I mean, there's people that live in Ventura County that are probably more likely part of the LA metro area than, than you would realize. So yeah, it's, it's, it's over 10 million people, probably closer to 15 million now. Yeah. That are reliance on this water infrastructure, by the way. So that's now. So back then in the twenties, I mean, it was probably I mean, I'm pretty sure there's less than a million. And they were taking enough water for two to three million. And so the Owens Valley was like, What the hell? What are you doing? Why are you taking all our water? You don't need that. And what Maholland was doing was he was basically dumping it into the LA river to try to replenish the uh, aquifer. <laughs> and then a lot of that would still go into the ocean. So it, it just optically, it was like, you guys are wasting our water. And there was enough, uh, I don't know if it was just because people were more physically active or there was less plastic in the water, but men had more testosterone. Let's just put it that way. So these guys were going out there in the middle of the night putting sticks of dynamite in these uh, these drainage uh, pipes into L.A. and they're blowing them up. And so Mulholland had to hire like private security and he gave them orders to shoot anybody who was doing this. And I don't remember if anybody got killed, but it was basically they had a they had a shoot to kill order. Uh, it was bad. It was this it was is really this is a wider trend of this era. You know, you have. This is the Gilded Age. This is the 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 uh, the progressive era. This is, you know, we think of that mostly in terms of the politics of the East Coast and the Midwest, but it was still very much the same, even in sort of the the pioneer regions of the American Southwest and Southern California. Yeah. You do have large industrial interests, often centered around you know one single guy, and uh, they often have to deal with these sorts of uh, weird legal problems. Uh, today, it would be sort of unimaginable. But at the time, you know, law enforcement wasn't nearly as organized. The government was there, but mostly involved in just the infrastructure and day-to-day state management. So they were not necessarily going to play a part either. So you do have this weird legal gray area where private interests can just hire security contractors today. You know, I guess we'd call them private military contractors. And allow them to, you know, inflict death on American citizens over uh, property disputes, over trespassing, over damage to property, vandalism. Uh, today, that'd be insane. I mean, it would just be uh, unimaginable the level of, uh, or the way that society is organized now. But it was still a legal gray area that you, if you could do this, could you do this? Was anyone going to bother you if you did this? No, nobody really knew, and nobody knew what to, how to prosecute the uh, the saboteurs. I mean, I think that I read. Uh, well, you mentioned they, law they, enforcement, and, and again, this is sort of back in the day when you know the uh, Globo Homo didn't really exist. There, <laughs> there was like localism, and yeah. the, sh- the sheriff well, basically I mean, they, looked they the other way at this. I mean, he he's like, this is my town. These are my guys. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna catch them. I'm, I'm just gonna, you know, ignore what what these guys are doing because he agreed with them. And well, that, that they, sort of thing still went in, on. In the in the book, I mean, at one point they do arrest some ringleaders and they they put them on trial, and the jury refuses to deliver a verdict. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, you know, it, it's it's a very strange time in America. Uh, really, you know, the the, the well, compared to now. Yeah, compared to now, in particular. Um, 
and uh, th- this was going on all over the country. Now, by the time the 1930s rolls around the 1940s, the the legal paradigm of America really became more concrete. But this was still the kind of the last era of, uh, you, you know, where you could pull this kind of thing off on both sides. You could be a saboteur and get away with it. And you could hire military contractors to kill people and get away with it. Both both sides of the coin. <laughs> I mean, they weren't even military contractors. Reasonable. They were just private militias that, yeah, you know, like okay, the yeah, Pinkerton Guard or yeah. whatever Henry Ford was hiring to, you know, beat up strikers and stuff. I mean, it was like you could just get this stuff, you know, like, you know, in the middle of the night. Nobody what, would what like country, report it. country, by the way, like you could you could build like massive industrial projects overnight. You could just decide to do it and you could also – uh, hire like your own private army in a day, or you could go blow up someone's property with dynamite and then get and then the sheriff would cover for you. I mean, it was like, <laughs> it's just totally, totally different world. I mean, you know, the, the irony here, by the way, is that this is before there's any great level of control on society. There's no massive amount of government interference the government's only interest at this time is allowing everybody to do whatever they want, whether it's in facilitating it. But, you know, the irony is that America was built, it was, was embarking on these massive civilizational projects uh, when there was less overall direction and control. People would just do things and the people that were mad about it would just do things. Now, you know, you would go appeal to a municipal county court and then you might file a lawsuit and then you're you know you're uh, you're in litigation for three years and it's it's sort of ridiculous back then it's just blow up that guy's pipeline with a stick of dynamite like why not or i'm gonna build a giant garden hose for 1500 miles from you know across the rocky mountains into the desert or, or the other direction like it it you could just do whatever you wanted and people actually accomplished a variety of things. That, that's one of the great ironies of, of the book, I think. By the time the the 70s and the 80s rolls around in the book and you know all these projects are so tightly managed and everybody's tightly coordinated, like very little work is done. And everybody has this foreboding sense of doom, like, you know, if we don't solve these problems, the, the West will dry up, people will die. But there's very little that's actually accomplished. Well, part part of that is the nature of just population. I think the the country became much more densely populated. Communication technology obviously interconnected everything, and so people are up in each other's business um, much more than you know in the early development phase. And um, it probably isn't that different throughout the rest of history. It's just a matter of our people going to be affected by what you're doing and if they are you know they're going to start raising um raising an issue about it if they're if they're if they're you know respectable researchers out there that wanted to look into that particular issue of just the amount of um i don't know red tape as correlated with population density. I think it'd be an interesting topic to, to look into, but it's just my intuition as to what drives a lot of that. Um, the environmental movement is, is a whole 
can of worms. I mean, it's just uh, like, what is behind it? I mean, a lot of people think it was like <laughs> the Soviet Union basically trying to like throw sand into the gears of America. And I think probably there's some truth to that, but there's also like, you know, the, the, the industrialization was, was wrecking the economy, just like it's wrecking China and today and anybody who, or any place that is uh, that, rampant in its development, it's, it's going to have an impact. So we'll leave that for another time to maybe talk about, but, um, just to wrap up on Mulholland, Los Angeles, uh, the book circles back because there was some stuff that was developed later because the initial system that the Owens Valley was providing actually was insufficient because I mentioned it was intended for about 2 million people. Well, where the water come from for the extra 10 million. <laughs> so they obviously had to do more work, but Mulholland was, was gone by then, but his history and his past, uh, is, his career. I, I didn't know as much about him as the book taught me, obviously. And it was, um, it was sort of a mixed record and it's sort of a sad state in which he found himself at the end of his life because he became very frustrated by the experience from a lot of the uh, pushback he got from Owens Valley, uh, the explosive pushback, literally. And he became very recalcitrant and, and mean when it came to dealing with people from that part of uh, the uh, the state uh, to the point where he wouldn't even talk to them and just wouldn't negotiate, sit down, try to come up with some kind of agreement. Um, he just got bitter and... A lot of the um, the sort of trajectory of his career, while it was it was sort of peaking when he had built these uh, these marvelous systems for uh, transporting water, it, ne- it it never been I think brought that that far. I mean the uh, the New York uh, water system is comparable in terms of its scale, but I don't think the Catskills are 250 miles away from New York City. Um, I think it's closer, and so the distance, the the sort of engineering challenges of lifting or siphoning water up these great mountains that just don't exist in the East coast were, were sort of extraordinary. And so that, that was a, a massive accomplishment. And I guess LA appreciated it enough to the point where, uh, they named a, uh, a, a marvelous, uh, stretch of road that you have a beautiful view of the, the Los Angeles area from after Mulholland. But, uh, his legacy is somewhat tarnished by the uh, other projects that he was involved in, particularly the uh, the dam projects that uh, were uh, not not built to proper standards, I guess. Uh, it may have been up to standard standard, like quote unquote, but it wasn't uh, sufficient. Let's put it that way, because in one particular case in Francis Valley, there was a very bad uh, collapse of the dam uh, that ended up killing almost 500 people. And it was, uh, it was done. It was done kind of quickly. Uh, many people speculate as to why these things collapsed. It's strange because Mulholland didn't like dams for the longest time. And, and he sort of came around to them, I guess, reluctantly, he had to admit that they were necessary, but he, he was really into this uh, idea of, uh, letting water just run freely so that it would get into the aquifer sort of an interesting concept. And and I, I give him credit for actually understanding that because I don't think a lot of people understand that a lot of where our water comes from is under from underground. Uh, it's sort of unintuitive maybe that, you know, there's water down there, but 
um, it is basically a giant reservoir. And he liked that idea that he wanted to put the water back into the ground because it's sort of free in the case that you don't have to build a giant dam to hold it back. And, uh, you don't have this problem of them breaking, but they, they did. And he was actually involved in three dams that, uh, collapsed. And, um, he, he, he was actually very, um, very morose about, about his life after that happened because, uh, they asked him in a press conference, you know, how do you, how do you feel, you know, after this, this dam broke and killed 450 people. And he's like, you know, I wish I was one of them. He he felt, he felt that embarrassed. You know, uh, I was going to make an, uh, an omelets and eggs analogy. You're talking about some of the dams that failed, but he was, the the people involved in this were, yeah, like, as you said, very morose, I think very uh, saddened, but a lot of them were perfectionists. And they had become like victims of their own success in many ways, particularly Mulholland, who might have been perhaps the most powerful man in the state of California during his, you know, his later years. I mean, you know, everybody went to him for something. He was asked to run for political office multiple times and he refused. He just he had no interest in it. But uh, these were intensely powerful people particularly him, him because they created an entire uh, civilization. It really is worth uh, considering, by the way, what the future of California would have been without people like him and without these projects. Uh, California would probably be... Oh, it, wouldn't, very, it wouldn't be anything like it is it, today. It would, it would be a very minor player in the politics of the country, it would have very little economic uh, participation. Its primary function uh, would come from the north of the state, uh, and would have been probably involved in, you know, what it was involved in with uh, in the 19th century, outside of gold mining, which was just mining in general, uh, uh, timber, some uh, commodity exports, and its usefulness as with uh, uh, ports on the Pacific Ocean. And huge tracts of the state would have been uh, unused, uninhabited, and with no future, uh, which is, you know, ironically the same problem that states like Louisiana have, or states like Arkansas, uh, for the very inverse of the re- of reason is that for so long, you know, huge tracts of those states are swamp, they're marsh, they're unusable. I don't know about uh, Arkansas, but Louisiana well, Arkansas definitely. Had ma- I mean, Arkansas had they have floods. And, well, they had immense, absolutely immense projects to drain marshlands, to control river flow, to control uh, underground aquifer flow. I mean, huge tracts of Arkansas were totally unusable and were completely cut. You know, you, you had areas cut off from one another for various reasons uh, until like the New Deal effectively you know, built the state of Arkansas. But yeah. You, you know, it was the same problem. You would have had huge tracts of the state unusable for, you know, a variety of ecological reasons and geographic reasons. And, and I, I probably mentioned it, or if I haven't, I'll just mention it now because it's sort of important. Um, the story of the, the flood control in particular, but just the sort of uh, development of waterways in the eastern United States is predominantly one of the uh, Army Corps of Engineers. 
it's it's sort of uh, the Bureau of Reclamation's rival, and it's, they begin to compete with each other. By yes. the way, in like the forties and fifties for, for a project. I mean, the the Colorado or the the Hoover Dam was the first example of them fighting each other, but mm-hmm. they really do compete, particularly later for hydroelectric projects. They're both uh, intensely invested so, in in that. I I need to learn more about the Army Corps. I I've obviously. I have an idea of what it does. It's, you know, it's from the army. They have engineers. Um, but you go to their website and it's just so strange. Cause it's like, they have this logo that looks like a castle. And then there's pictures of these guys and like these they look like Marines actually. I, I don't know, but they, they're in like military dress, but like some of them have glasses, you know, that like they're, they're, they're smart. And, mm-hmm. uh, but they're not like fighters. Like they, they fight water. <laughs> it's just I mean, like, yeah, what, they're, they're, they're what, what's a, what's goal. a guy who like, what's the, what's the psychographic profile of a guy who wants to become a army engineer? I, it's just something, well, it's probably the, there's no movie about this, point, this type of person. It's at this point, you know, it's interesting. You had in the, in the 19th century and early 20th century, you had a lot of what were called irrigation corporations or water corporations. And as I said, at the beginning, Particularly in the states of Colorado and Wyoming, as the book kind of details, uh, in Utah, uh, you have lots of these small companies playing these engineering roles. Um, often, as contractors, some of them would own the land and just build infrastructure on it and then be utilized, like almost like a turnkey project. Um, but they, they were all over the place. Today, you do have subcontractors, you do have engineering companies that might participate, but you don't have a wide breadth of, you know, irrigation corporations or water reclamation corporations. You have, you don't have managers that are sort of from different places. You really have the Army Corps of Engineers to this day is still heavily involved in the management of water resources in the American West. In fact, the Army Corps of Engineers right now at this very moment is actively uh, working on water distribution uh, across about 11 states, all the way up from Montana, uh, trying to figure out how to solve the impending water crisis that we're about to see in uh, in uh, in the United in the western half of the United States, I and mean, sort of going back in time. Uh, but they're still involved. You can still find news articles talking about their direct involvement to this day. It is their responsibility. They did sort of win that battle over the Bureau of Reclamation in the sense that they are in charge of how water is distributed to an extent across the states. They're in charge of the infrastructure. They're in charge of monitoring levels. In fact, if they, I think that if they wanted, they could even uh, force states to go along, state governments to go along with what they wanted. They don't seem to do that. But there, as you said, their their chief. If you want to work in the Army Corps of Engineers, I think that you have to be very interested in a water project. That was their function in the Midwest, in the eastern half of the United States, uh, all the way up through the New Deal. Well, was do, do they have building. a role in like actual foreign uh, war? So the Army Corps, you know, the Army Corps of Engineers, will actually participate in military operations. Yeah, don't yeah. don't they build like bridges for? They they build all stuff? kinds of things, but they in you know it's interesting in that they operate domestically in the United States, which yes. is rare for a military department to be operating on domestic projects like that. You know, 
Uh, well, no, it, it is US rare. Military is everywhere, but I, I think I know what you mean. Yeah, in most countries, the military is much more heavily involved in the day-to-day management of life. Like the the military engineers probably manage the resources of many kind of second world or third world countries. They manage the infrastructure here. You know, the Army Corps uh, is one of the few that actually has that sort of daily participatory role. Uh, how they got that role is a whole other can of worms. I, I don't even think the the real history of the Army Corps of Engineers has ever been written. But the point is that they win the battle between them and the Bureau of Reclamation. The Bureau of Reclamation is sort of relegated to just building dams at a later stage, whereas the Army Corps uh, is, is in charge of the wider infrastructure overlay and they're in charge of managing a lot of resources. It depends on what you mean by when, I mean, we'll, we'll get into this, but the amount of locations that where you could build a dam today are just not that, they're they're just not that apparent. I think that has a lot to do with the, the declining role of the Bureau of Reclamation. Mm -hmm. Uh, these rivers have already been reclaimed. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> but well, we're not building. Uh, yeah. We don't build dams anymore. So I don't. I don't know what the rec- Bureau of Reclamation is even around to do, or what. You know. uh, they got to operate them, maintain them. I mean, these these dams deteriorate, so it, it's not. Yeah, like... but they're not even being actively worked on. I mean, you can you can find news articles from all the western states, particularly you know California, where. You just see news after news after news yeah, about, yeah, yeah. about deteriorating dams and nobody wants to work on them. Or some Amerindian tribe comprised of 23 people, you know, objects to adding 15 feet to a dam <laughs> in, in, you know, Eureka, California. And so then the project doesn't go through. And you just, it's, I, I, you know, I feel bad for them that uh, they don't really have a big role to play. And, it's fascinating uh, because I don't know because they're bureaucrats. I don't really give a shit. But well, they there's lots of engineers. I'm sure they I'm sure they have a very yeah. good pension. I guarantee you, no matter what, yeah. they're going to get paid more so than the average American. But they, you know, there's just unfortunately there's not much to do anymore. Uh, well, I'm sorry, there is lots to do. <laughs> oh, there's but paper the, to the be will, pushed, will, man. The will to do there's it and the paper. ability the, the the ability to get it done has diminished. Yeah. Okay, but we'll we'll get into more of that. I mean, again, I don't think necessarily it's a function of necessarily the bureau's incompetence. It's just the the sort of environmental context that they operate in is is more challenging. Um, all right. So I do want to dive. I guess we would dive into the Colorado River drama next. Oh well, um, no, no. We'll we'll get to no. that. I'm just going to go with the outline of the book, just because then I don't lose track if if that's all right with you. But we'll get to that. Yeah, sure. We'll get to that. Guaranteed. Because it's it's a huge. I mean, our, our, it's probably the biggest component of the West. I mean, it's the Columbia River, but the Colorado affects I think more people uh, in a tangible, important way. So, but all right. So the the next uh, thing I had was uh, it's very brief, but I think the author is just trying to like re-illustrate that without the uh, effective supply of reliable water. Um, you're screwed. And so he gives an example of the, uh, the blizzard and then the three years of drought oh, that occurred yeah. in the 1880s, um, predominantly All the way into in the, the 1890s. 
Sure. Like it, it lasted like 15 years, effectively. It was, it was a brutal. Well, there drought. was a big recession back then. It was probably yeah. heavily related to the fact that there was just no water. Uh, and it, it killed a million cattle in the blizzard. Um, they had a negative 100-degree wind chill, apparently. Um, the, uh, the, the next three years um, where there was a drought, 25% of the population who had just settled out there under the Homestead Act they left. <laughs> they just gave up. <laughs> and a lot of them went to Oklahoma where you mentioned the Indians, the U S I mean the, the sort of turnaround on like you talk about like some tribe is able to stop a, you know, a two story increase in the, uh, the already existing dam, mind you, uh, height now versus back then in the 1880s, the government basically had given all of Oklahoma to the various Indian tribes that it had moved there on the trail of tears. <laughs> and I shouldn't laugh, but basically it's just, uh, they just like, yeah, never mind. You only get this section because they had all these other people that were fleeing from, uh, the Dakotas. Yeah. To, they well, to and live people there. out west go trying to move back to get out of the. Uh, I mean, the west was sparse, but there were people there who were bailing back you know, to the Midwest, uh, like Oklahoma, as you said. Yeah. The irony, by the way, there there is an irony there in that many people that would go on to eventually populate much of. Uh, uh, the uh, eastern side of the Cascades in Oregon and uh, the Central Valley of California uh, were themselves uh, from Oklahoma and Texas. Lots of Okies moved out there in order to kind of work on the. Uh, well, that the, was during the, the 1930s. In which no, that was, it was earlier. Right. It was earlier. They were moving out there for sort of the proto oil industry and some of the farming. But, okay, but yeah. I, in terms of the numbers, I don't have the numbers in front of me. But I, my understanding is, you know, the Okies were a depression thing, um, predominantly. I'm sure there was, of course, there's people who go before that, but it's, um, you know, the, the vast migration happened during the Dust Bowl, basically. My understanding. This is why, by the way, you'll find people in these areas that do have a drawl. I mean, part of it's like a yeah, like, a like a, it's like a redneck affectation. But there are people there that genuinely do have a drawl. They say "warsh" and things like you know words like that. They uh, these are genuine, like third or fourth generation, fifth generation uh, uh, families. Some of which I think have moved back and forth between sort of the Midwest or Texas and California, depending on the, their fortunes. They, 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 you know, they would attempt to settle, they'd, they'd bail, they'd attempt to settle again. Uh, sort of interesting experiments in expanding the civilization back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, trying to, trying to make it work. So the, the point of that an example was just uh these droughts in particular were were huge problems for farmers and they would literally push massive groups i mean we talk about refugees today which are basically political in nature arguably but a lot you know some of it is uh economic as well and and this in particular was uh, an example of that internally where there were economic refugees caused by the weather um 
And if you don't have, uh, especially if you're a farmer, you know, you, you depend on weather. You absolutely depend. I mean, for everything almost it's, uh, you know, the two of the three main components, you know, water, soil, and sunshine. I mean, two of those, you know, and, and even the soil, I mean, in the case of the Dust Bowl was affected by human settlement, arguably, but also the weather. Uh, so when you have bad weather and you farm, you are, you are screwed. So the, uh, the next thing the book gets into, uh, was a little bit what you're mentioning, uh, actually, uh, it's sort of the, the, the twenties and thirties and the Boulder Dam, which became the Hoover Dam, uh, was actually commissioned by Herbert Hoover, I believe. And he was, we talked about Herbert Hoover in an episode and I'm getting a little rusty on the exact chronology. I believe it was a, it was a depression era project that was encouraged by Mr. Hoover because he was, uh, he was an engineer and he liked things like this, but the, uh, the completion of it, I think was, was FDR's time by the time that, uh, FDR rolled in very quickly after Hoover's, I think very brief four year term compared to FDR's four term 16 years or something. It's just insane. This guy. Um, and, and Hoover was kind of building off of existing, ideas and projects at first the rail uh, railroad company southern pacific had attempted to uh build out starting in 1905 i believe where people realized that the colorado river could be this immense source of uh at the time just irrigation possibly other uses uh so the, the hoover was sort of working off of already realizing plans and starting in the 1920s really to tap this resource so he got named i think as uh, you know the, the dam is named after him because he had actually uh sort of begun work at the federal level on the project before the depression even hit i think you know starting yeah start, I, I don't think they had laid laid you know, down the they, forms for the concrete but right, i think yeah. he had actually done which arguably is the hardest part is actually getting the project approved correct, in the, uh, correct. the swamp of the, the of project DC. would not have happened without hoover actually uh, securing it so it's named after him because it was really the project started under him the construction of it for the most part uh, had taken place obviously uh, in the depression but it was it was really his his brainchild in many ways and it was also the brainchild of the the irrigation corporations and the state governments and southern pacific railroad at all invested pretty heavily in, uh, in making this happen particularly um, a man named edward harriman who was a uh, you know sort of the railroad magnet of the west yeah and and if we were um professionally paid to do this and we had a, a crew and Ken Burns style documentary mm -hmm. yeah. uh, system in, in place, we would give you a, a very nice refresher on what the depression was, because I think this is important context, but long and short of it is. You could do the is, Ken Burns thing where you zoom in and out on photos while yeah, you're talking. So, well, yeah. you have to, you have to have that lady, right? With her four <laughs> kids sitting on the porch. Right, like that, right, that's right, that's right. the important photo, but um, she was probably from Oklahoma, but uh, who knows? She was in California, I believe, but she could have fled there from somewhere else. Uh, the, uh, the depression was, was, was bad. 
it was really bad. And there was uh, not uh, like today, uh, EBT cards and uh, massive obese people sitting on uh, automated shopping carts at Walmart, getting stuff from the government. None of that existed, and people were were desperate. Uh, they, so it was everybody. The government was desperate. The industrial interests were desperate. I, I've been oh, reading. Sure. Uh, I've been reading Stalin's War by Sean McMeekin, and they there's a moment where it's brought up how. FDR and some of these uh, real brainiacs around him thought that one of the ways the United States could start to lift itself out of the depression was developing international markets. And this included <laughs> Stalinist Soviet Union as like a potential importer of American goods. So they were just, yeah, so desperate, I mean, Ford so went over there to... and built them their first car plant. Yeah. I think and it and still exists. People were and, so uh... desperate to look for, anything to grow you know grow the economy that uh, they were even engaging in just this you know absolute uh, insane foreign policy yeah uh, so it's so. really hard to kind of capture that in uh, the time we realistically have to actually focus on this topic but suffice it to say the depression was a, a really horrible time in the uh, you know end of the 20s in the 30s basically the whole 30s were just like the entire thirties were, were this, where people were unemployed. They couldn't feed their family. They were starving, literally uh, homeless. They called them Hoovervilles, like these tent cities that popped up. It was, uh, kind of like what we have today in the West coast of the United States, but it was, uh, it was bigger. It was bigger than that. And, uh, also where these people genuinely weren't necessarily like mentally ill, uh, where a lot of the homeless people today are. They just they, they had lost their job, and the economy just wasn't uh, providing any any replacement for what they had used to used to do. So, you know, sweeps into office Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, uh, the the savior. I'm going to save you, and he quickly starts erecting uh, just building after building in Washington D.C. for basically a mild version of the Soviet Union in the United States. He was like, okay, we're just going to centrally control and, and dictate projects because there's not enough uh, work. And the Bureau of Reclamation probably got a new building. They, um, if you look at the architecture in Washington, D.C., you see just the influence of that time because some of these buildings are kind of art deco, which I, I actually like. Um, it's sort of this neoclassical look to things. And a lot of these big monolithic structures are from the depression designed to give people project work. And the Hoover dam was, or the Boulder dam, um, until it was finished. And I think they gave Hoover, you know, it was a kind of in different era where they actually would like give the guy some credit. It was kind of cool. Like even though it was done by completed under Democrats, uh, they, they gave this sad Republican guy, uh, the, the, the name and the credit for, cause he was involved in the initial stages of it. So they called it the Hoover Dam when it was done, but during its construction, they got a lot of these, uh, Okies and Arkies, they called them, um, from the Dust Bowl that had fled out of this really poorly managed farm belt in the Great Plains in particular in Oklahoma, places like that that had just gotten decimated from farming practices that just were probably tilling the soil too much and not um, not taking into account the fact that that drought plus wind will basically 
eradicate all the all the good topsoil and, and turn it into uh, dust that I think literally crossed the Atlantic Ocean. Um, there were countries in Europe that were reporting you know, dust showing up from this stuff. So if you're a farmer, you know you lose all your topsoil and there's no water. Um, you're you're pretty much uh, pretty much dead on arrival. And so they were they were leaving in droves and. There was this project going on in, um, I guess it's, uh, I guess it's Arizona, right? It, it straddles the border between, um, or is it Nevada? Actually, what 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 state is the, the Hoover Dam in? It's right between Arizona, Nevada, and California. It's not California. I want to say it's Arizona, but it could be Nevada. But effectively, it's where the, those three states meet. Um, that little bottom strip of California is kind of this goofy little thing. Cause it, it's act, that's actually the Colorado river, or at least what's left of it. Now um, that forms the, the, the Southeastern tip of California. And at the, the, the top of that where Nevada shoots in and then Arizona, that's where they built this dam. And it's, it's the Colorado river that comes down from Arizona where the grand Canyon is. And they have other dams there, but uh, it's that big, deep gorge that is formed by this this river that apparently is actually not that old, but it was just uh, formed through some geological process, through the mountains being built, and then the the glaciation melting that carved out this ridiculously uh, fabulous canyon that serves as a, an incredible location for building a reservoir and hydroelectric facility. And uh, the construction was envisioned, as you mentioned, by people like Hoover. Uh, but the the undertaking was something that people just hadn't fathomed. It, it was it was the largest dam when it was built in the world, as measured by I don't know, probably hydroelectric power, but also uh, the height. I think probably was was uh, unbeaten. The amount of concrete that had to be poured was probably the most ever. Uh, soon to be eclipsed by the way, by other projects. But at the time it was, it was attracting not only just the desperate workers, but the really the best engineering minds, civil engineering minds, uh, in the country to, to go work for the Bureau of Reclamation, who I think had this project. Uh, they, they were, they were the destination because there, there was no, you know, skyscrapers were a thing, but with the depression going on, uh, there wasn't as much work for that. So what are you going to do? Well, let's build some dams uh, or let's build some bridges, you know, the, the Golden Gate Bridge or something. So th- this was um, this was a big destination for, for smart people, for hardworking people, for people who wanted to, to build something and get the country back on its feet. And when this thing was uh, being poured, uh, we, we covered it in more detail in our show on the Hoover Dam, but it was... Um, it was so much concrete that if they had let it cure, um, and if you've ever poured concrete, you know that you need to add water to cement and put some aggregate in it. But most formwork for houses or sidewalks or whatever you're building are pretty small. And so that concrete is going to have air touching it. There's going to be cooling. There's You can get water to it if you need to add it later. Uh, that stuff cures up in about a couple weeks, you know, officially it's, it's about 95% strong after a month, but you're, you're pretty good after a week or two. The problem with the Hoover dam was if you look at the, the cross-sectional design of it, it, it sits in 
obviously a valley, uh, but the top of it is the thinnest portion of it where there's the least water pressure because, you know, as you go deeper down, if you've ever swam into a lake, you know, if you dive down, the water pressure starts hurting your ears because the weight of the water accumulates above you. And so the deeper down you go, if you're having a structure that holds back that water, the thicker and stronger your foundation has to be, the lower you go. So the, the dam is effectively, it's an arch dam if you look at it from the face or the top where it's it's curving into the reservoir so that you take advantage of that that sort of physical phenomenon known as an arch that distributes the the, the force around the structure somewhat evenly and then it sort of spreads it out to the sides in the case of the dam uh, as opposed to concentrating in the middle then busting it apart uh, but also if you go on the side looking on the side you see that the dam is sort of like a pyramid so the base of it is is a massive amount of concrete and some dams are built with earth those have issues because they sometimes leak because they're not as rigidly uh, held together as concrete is, but they're a lot cheaper, obviously, because you're just you're just putting dirt down on rocks as opposed to having this really tricky material that you have to mix and cure. Uh, and, th- and this is the particular is what what I'm getting to is that the the amount of concrete that they had was so much that the curing rate of that concrete because it actually gives off heat when when it reacts with the water um it would take a hundred years if it just was allowed to cool on its own so they had to build a huge system of pipes that went through this thing to cool it as it was curing uh and they i think they got it down to a couple years basically uh so that they finally built this thing but this this project was not only from an engineering perspective never done before and an incredible feat of engineering but also just labor-wise, um, the hard hat was actually invented on this project, if I recall correctly, uh, because it was dangerous. Uh, they were having these massive cranes that would pick up the penstocks for the water, uh, and then obviously the concrete. They There was no facilities out there. It's, just, it's a horrible desert, and so they had to build all this stuff, and then they had to have cranes picking all these things up and dumping concrete into these forms. And then the conditions for the workers were really rough. Um and it's summertime now and it's it's a good bet wherever you are it's sort of hot and which is annoying but you know we have air conditioning we can sit inside or we can wait you know to do our work you know on our laptop or something it doesn't really affect us that much unless you work outside uh in construction or something or you're a farmer um and you do feel it then but on top of that on top of being in a desert in a desert i think it's arizona arizona is like one of the most high temperature parts of the United States. Uh, Phoenix, Arizona is regularly during the summertime above 110 degrees. Um, it's insufferable. If you didn't have air conditioning, you couldn't live there. If you go to where the Hoover Dam was built and you go into the, the canyon, because the, the deeper you go down, you know, the higher the temperature because um, of atmospheric insulation, basically. But also the fact that the canyon walls are trapping that air i think the temperatures for the summertime construction were going over 120 possibly over 130 degrees i i i can't imagine how awful that is i mean i've worked in 100 degree weather and it's it's horrible 
but imagine doing heavy construction in 130 degree weather. So people were dying from this, like people were dying from heat exhaustion. But remember, this is the Great Depression. People were desperate. So there were camps of people living around this dam that were waiting for people to give up or die on this thing so they could take their job. Imagine that now. Imagine anybody actually waiting outside an Amazon facility for somebody to quit because it sucks, but, you know, to take their job. I mean, the government is so much more uh, generous today to hear people complain. I mean, it's 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 incomparable how, how bad it was back then. So, I don't know. I've rambled on enough about the Hoover Dam, but eventually they got it built, and this was a marvel of every proportion I've already mentioned. We detailed in our show, but it's just hard to sort of describe like what a feat this was. And this really became the sort of poster child for the Bureau of Reclamation to go on and do what it, what it did later, uh, which was many more projects. And so I think the thirties though, were really when this type of dam construction became essential because it was, um, not only a, a jobs program, but also a way to sort of get the country psychologically back on its feet and give it confidence that it could do something. Uh, and also in an area that arguably really did need these types of projects. Uh, so the Hoover Dam is a, is a perfect example of, of where all that comes together. Very well said, sir. Very well said. Well, we can kind of fast forward a bit to uh, uh, later in the book. Um, I don't want to skip over the Grand Coulee Dam, but but why well, don't you, why don't, why don't you talk? Why don't you talk about that then? Talk about it a little bit. Okay, so if the Hoover Dam was was a marvel engineering and a work of art, frankly, if you've ever seen it, it's again got that Art Deco style and it's it's a a, a marvelous setting. It's really kind of like a a golden gate bridge for the grand Canyon. It's, it's a, it's a bridge also. I mean, you, you cross the, cross the, the, uh, I think they built a, um, a secondary highway on its own bridge now, uh, that I don't know if that was because of nine 11, they didn't want a lot of people going down there, but it was, um, it used to just be, you had to like drive over the dam to get, get over, uh, that Canyon at, at that location, obviously. And now you have this like kind of, viaduct that you can drive over and you can actually see, I think you can see the dam from it. I, I haven't actually been there since they built that thing, but, um, it, it's gorgeous and it's, uh, it's got Lake Mead behind it, which is drying up by the way. But, um, if that is a, a marvel of, uh, engineering plus beauty, the Grand Coulee Dam was just a, a marvel of, uh, engineering plus power in every sense of the word. Um, so the Grand Coulee, so we, we've talked about the Colorado, the, the, the story of the Colorado is not really over yet, but it's, um, that was sort of the way the book presented it. It was during the depression. That was kind of the big thing. Another dam that was built in the depression was, um, the Grand Coulee. And we have to shift a little bit now from the Southwest to the Northwest where you're in Washington state now, and you don't have the, the Colorado anymore. You have the Columbia and the Columbia is, um, in terms of just uh, water flow, I think it's uh, I think it's higher. It's it's I don't think it's an order of magnitude higher than Colorado, but it's um, 
it's huge. It's huge. It's smaller than the Mississippi, but because of the rainfall that the uh, North Pacific Northwest gets, it's, um, it's a high flow river and it's, um, it's massive. It, it's, if you look at it from the bank, I don't think it's like the Mississippi, which is like a mile wide. It's just that that thing is, a, it's also a little bit slower too, but the Columbia is kind of a, a mountainous river that is huge, but also has a huge flow rate. And this is the largest dam that was ever built in the United States, but at the time in the world. And it was constructed in in a way that could be solved from an engineering point of view. So it's this, it's not an arch dam like, um, like Hoover because the, the banks of the river are much wider. Uh, and in order to sort of create this complex arch, they probably would have had to do some pretty annoying, uh, precision engineering that they didn't want to do. I'm just guessing. I, I don't really know exactly all the trade-offs involved in this stuff. And to find this out, I mean, you'd have to find the guy who actually worked on the project. It, th- this stuff is 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 very complicated, but it, it's a sort of a quasi-arch. I've been to this dam once, and it was uh, it was a sight to behold. Um, and and the the sound. I mean, the, you don't see, you don't capture this from pictures, obviously, but. The sound of that water um, is unbelievable. The only other place I've ever experienced that was actually at Niagara Falls, which does have a hydroelectric facility as well. Um, But because you can get so close to the waterfall at Niagara Falls, Canadian side's better, by the way. Uh, The American Falls, nobody goes there. But (laughs) the uh, Canadian side, you can actually walk right up to the side of the waterfall and you, you, you can't have a conversation with anybody. I mean, you can't hear what's going on. It's so loud. Just the sheer power of that. It's the entire Great Lakes dumping out, basically. Um, and the the sound um, at the Grand Coulee is sort of like that, but it's it's a little bit less because they've, they've channeled that water through systems of pipes called penstocks that go into power plants. But you could still... You still can hear it and you can, you, you fathom the the scale of this thing just by looking at it and hearing it and sensing it. And, uh, it's, it's kind of a dam that looks like, um, sort of like a roof that's like turned on its side. There's a really long section and then there's another section that kind of curves at a, at a, at a, a sharp angle into the other bank. And, uh, this, uh, I'd have to pull up the numbers on the Hoover dam, but I do remember the, the potential power generation from the, um, the Grand Coulee, it's uh, 6,000 megawatts. Um, now when you get into megawatt hours and how much total power is generated and all that stuff, we're, we're getting into sort of the weeds of how electricity is measured, but that's the sort of like basis for comparison to other dams. And I was telling Hans, I was doing some physics before we started the show because I didn't, I didn't understand something um, and I still don't quite get it. Although I have an intuitive guess as to what's going on here, but the way this dam is built, it's a reservoir gravity dam. And uh, I don't know if people really want to hear this, but I think it's important to understand how this stuff works because the chief function, unlike um, other dams that the Bureau and the Army Corps of Engineers built, which were a lot of them were for irrigation, obviously in the West, but the Pacific Northwest doesn't have that issue. They get so much rain, they don't need irrigation, really, unless you're in Yakima, Washington or something like that. But the predominant reason for these dams in the Pacific Northwest is hydroelectric power. It's it's not... F- 
necessarily flood control, although that can be an issue. Um, it's electricity. And the Grand Coulee was, was the king for years until, I don't know, uh, maybe maybe Itaipu in Brazil or something, but uh, the, it's a huge dam. And the way you measure um, electricity potential on these dams, it's a function of a few things. The formula, it, and this is potential, not, not output, by the way, but this is the um, energy potential. It's a function of the density of water, basically like how much mass is, is in a particular area. Uh, it's a function of the volume of water. It's a function of the power of gravity because hydroelectric facilities are powered by the force of the earth pulling water down. And then you put something in front of that power and then the, the earth's gravity pulls it through that, that turbine basically. And then you, you can spin a magnet and generate electricity, but it's also a function of height. They call it uh, head. They call it the head, and it's not necessarily the the height of the top of the water, but it's the average height of the reservoir. So, I think that intuitively makes some sense. But that last part, the height, is really what makes the difference between the Grand Coulee Dam, which is on the Columbia, and the dam that's below it, the Chief Joseph Dam. Uh, that's the the river or the uh, the dam that is right below the Grand Coulee. This is a different type of dam. This is a a dam that actually doesn't have that last component of the uh, energy potential equation. Uh, It's called a run of the river dam, which is effectively, if you didn't build this really tall uh, concrete structure to create a reservoir, and then you put a turbine at the bottom of it, it, which is how the Hoover Dam works and how the Grand Coulee Dam works. This is a dam that effectively, if you just had a river and you put a, a little paddle wheel in the middle of it that's a run of the river roughly like that that's roughly the difference so you don't have that average reservoir height to affect things and because it's a multiplication function it's a linear function you have uh, the higher the reservoir the more power you get the problem that confused me though is that these two dams are on the same river and they have to actually coordinate and this gets into how actually the operations of hydroelectric systems work or hydro hydrological systems work is that when you have uh, various dams on the same river system, they have to coordinate because if you have a big dam like the Grand Coulee and then you have a smaller dam uh, like the uh, Chief Joseph, um, well, the water that comes out of the Grand Coulee is going to hit the, the Chief Joseph. And if the dam above you is sending more water than the dam below you can handle, you're going to have something that spills over the top of it. You're going to have maybe a dam break or something. So they all have to work together. So effectively, the Grand Coulee has to release amount of water that is proportional to the amount of water that Chief Joseph can handle, which is a smaller dam, doesn't have a reservoir, but it's a different design so that it it takes um, basically just the power of the river flowing as opposed to the, the gravitational increase of that, that reservoir height. So what confused me though, is that, okay, if the water amounts are basically the same, yes, you have higher, you have higher head pressure, but when you have higher pressure, the, the rate at which the water comes out is increased. I mean, you could feel it. If you, again, if you have a siphon or something, you could feel the water coming out faster when you have higher pressure. So, is the power coming from the, the increased rate? I don't know, but apparently they have the same rate. 
and they just have that higher dam. And so I was a little bit confused as to why the Grand Coulee has three times the hydroelectric potential as the subsequent uh, subsequent dam. So if somebody wants to do the physics math, let me know. But in any case, the Grand Coulee is the biggest dam in the United States. And it, it was built during the Depression by similar types of people from the Midwest that were looking for work. Uh, and it was, uh, I want to say it was the Reclamation Bureau of Reclamation, but and I, I think it is actually, yeah. Th- this was their their second big project. And just, again, taking a step back, like all these big uh, sort of signature dams that I think most people would be more curious about are actually paled in comparison by the actual quantity of other types of dams, but they're just much more boring. So the big sites, that this is the big point that I want to get across as well as like why the Bureau is sort of like kind of taken second fiddle to the Army Corps is that these big hydro projects, which are kind of more of the uh, the mandate for the Bureau when it was getting going during the Depression, those those good sites are, are practically gone. And so they just don't have that many opportunities left. And so there was actually more dams built in the 1960s than in the 1930s, but they were much smaller. And so most people don't know about them. They're not, you know, as magnificent looking. And so these huge, massive structures were really got going during the Great Depression, kind of petered out over time because these locations just just disappeared. So when you build these huge, huge dams, the reservoir behind it forms um, and depending on how steep your river is, if it's not a very steep river, that reservoir is going to extend back very far because eventually, yeah, the river will uprise above the height of your dam. But if it's a, it's a, if it's a shallow grade, that, that reservoir is going to have to get huge. And so it's going to take up a long stretch of that river. So effectively, if you look at a map of all the different dam structures that are built on these big rivers, you see that that there's a lot of dams and there's only a certain number of places you can put these things because once you put one up, unless you do a run of the river style, uh, you're going to build a big reservoir that takes up all that space. So you run out of room. You effectively literally run out of places to put these things. And so I think that's another important point as to like what's going on here is that hydropower has at one point it actually powered one third of the United States hydroelectric power, which is sort of hard to imagine today because today it's about 5%. It's a much smaller component. And a lot of that has been taken up by coal, which has recently been shut down and replaced by natural gas. Nuclear had a sort of renaissance, but then it got, it got environmentally controversial. And so it, it's sort of stabilized at around another maybe 3% actually. I think it's less. I, and I, I might be you know messing up those numbers, but uh, hydropower has gone from a, a third to, I would say, maybe less than 10% in the United States. And ironically, some of that power is actually pumped hydro designed to work as a battery for nuclear power plants, which run more efficiently if they can just be turned on and not turned off. It's a very difficult process to turn off nuclear power. And so what they do is when, you know, during the night when there's nobody turning the lights or when people are asleep, I should say, not not during the night, but people are asleep and not running the lights. And so the power plant's running. And what do you do with all that power? You can't really store it unless you've got batteries, which are you know, lithium ion or something was not really a thing back then. And they're still really expensive. So what they did was they built these, these artificial reservoirs that with no river behind them 
that literally would let the power plant continue to run and then pump that power up into this artificial reservoir during the night. And then during the day, when there was a spike in demand above what the, the power plant could necessarily produce, it was the, the nuclear power plant plus the hydroelectric facility behind that pump storage system. And so a lot of the, the more recent dams were actually built up around nuclear power plants. But anyway, that's a, that's a big tangent. Um, but we're, we're running out of places to do and the, the, uh, to do these types of things. And there was an estimate put out by the Department of Energy that said that we could probably double our hydroelectric potential in the United States at maximum. However, you know, the, there's diminishing returns and every, you know, in these types of systems, you typically go for the, they call it the low hanging fruit, which is the, the highest return on your investment first, which makes sense. Why would you do something that, that gives you a, a bad return first and then leave the good things for later? You want to get a return as soon as you can. That's how you build wealth. And so they, they've already done the, the best projects. So I don't know if the Department of Energy is looking at the economics of it. Probably not, but they're saying that there's potentially a doubling in hydroelectric facilities setting aside the environmental restrictions that we have today. If you had, you know, the 1930s era where people were desperate to do these types of things and wanting to do them, you could probably increase the number of dams, uh, assuredly, but could you double them? I don't know. And then some of that is, is an accounting of the amount of electricity that's possible. It's not the number of dams necessarily, but some of that is also refurbishing older dams or repurposing dams that don't have hydroelectric facilities. So giving kind of a long tangent on sort of what what the system looks like today, but just I wanted to mention that you know these types of dams were built because these dams didn't exist and these opportunities were available back then and they don't exist today. So the, the last couple things or one thing I want to mention about the Grand Coulee was uh, it's in Washington. It's actually when I went there, it was it's really hard to get to. It's kind of a weird place. It's sort of spooky. There's like a really dry area of eastern eastern washington unlike uh western washington is not as lush as uh the coastal areas of the western pacific northwest so it's kind of a rocky arid desert and i guess the water is coming from other places up in idaho or montana even flowing down um where there's enough mountains to capture that snow but in the particular site that the Grand Coulee sits at, it, it's a very weird, it's almost like the moon or Mars. It's, it's this rocky area. And you go and you're suddenly in this canyon and you see this gigantic structure. Very cool. But um, it was sort of in the middle of nowhere. And they built this thing um, during the Depression, but they, they couldn't finish it um, until actually the war started in the 40s. And... The um, the usefulness of it. And I was mentioning like why do you build these things? Like the the dams, uh, oftentimes were for irrigation, which is sort of more of a common good thing. Flood control, more of a common good thing. But hydroelectricity, <clears throat> even though it's uh, it is a utility, it's extremely useful. Um, the, the incidence of electric use of electrification really hadn't taken hold. Uh, in the United States until maybe the fifties, I would say, uh, when general electric was running ads for, you know, Ooh, electric hair dryers, electric ovens, you know, everything's electric. Um, I, I, I view that as sort of a post-World War II thing before that people were still you know, burning wood or, you know, they didn't have electricity or, or things like that. And when you built a dam like this, you had so much power, you didn't know what to do with it. And so 
the Washington state became, well, this is where Boeing was located. And one of the great things about the Pacific Northwest, and today it's actually utilized by, um, by software companies because the hydroelectric power is so cheap that the data centers that run from Google, Amazon, Facebook, uh, that do take a lot of electricity, by the way, when you're using your computer, you know, that, that isn't just what is on your laptop. It's also beamed into the server side that takes actually arguably more electricity because there's the storage you have to serve it. You have to transmit it over like tele- telecom lines and all that stuff. So that the, the, Computer companies today, the the software companies, should say, have located a lot of their data centers in places like uh, Washington, Oregon, because they have these big dams. But before all that, you know, there, there was no microprocessor in the '40s. Um, you had uh, you had heavy industry that could take advantage of all this electricity, and one of the biggest ones that could take advantage of electricity is aluminum. Aluminum smelting takes about 12 times as much energy per gram of uh, refined ore or refined aluminum as opposed to steel. And steel is a very energy-intensive industry. Um, but what you need to do to bauxite ore, which is what goes into aluminum, is you need to... Uh, there, there's a chemical process that actually used to be used, but it's it's very messy and, and costly and, and annoying, basically. But there was... Uh, somebody invented the ability to actually dump these giant electric electrodes into a vat of ore and just turn them on. And that, um, that I guess deoxifies basically the, the, the bauxite ore. It, it strips off the oxygen is what I'm imagining is happening. And it, it melts it to the point where you, you get that silvery aluminum. Uh, and it, it takes just a huge, huge, huge amount of energy. So with this dam being built, they could harness that 6,000 megawatts potential and dump it into something like aluminum, which then could then go into building B-29s at you know, the facilities at Boeing. So arguably, the, one of the biggest successes of the United States really came from its productive capacity. It wasn't so much that the military was better or uh, it wasn't even that much bigger. I mean, Germany had a bigger military when the war started. Uh, if you can believe that, um, even though the populations are quite um, quite different. I mean, it, it, today it's much more so, but back then I think uh, the German population was maybe maybe half that of the United States, but they still had a large military. And so the United States was able to produce. They, they were, just, were able to outproduce everybody. And after the war, that was even more so because everybody else was blown up. But the Grand Coulee Dam played a huge role in the United States' war effort as well. And then subsequently into things like, you know, data centers and all that stuff. Um, but that that was, to me, those two dams, uh, the, the Hoover Dam and the Grand Coulee, are, are just the icons of that era. And if you if you push me to name some other dams i could ne- i can mention them although the other cool thing about the grand coulee was um shasta dam which i've also been to that's one that one is in uh, california you could tell i'm sort of a dam nerd um i i, I do like uh, big infrastructure projects and it frustrates me that they don't really exist anymore or at least the new ones but the old ones are still out there if you go to the shasta dam in um california it's actually kind of a similar look to uh grand coulee but I think one or at least at least one, but possibly two of the turbines that were built in 
uh, into Shasta, which I guess was done uh, or almost done before the Grand Coulee, they actually shipped them up to the dam during its construction because they desperately needed to get that thing online for the war. And so they ripped out these these turbines from Shasta all the way in California. They must have put them on a, I mean, these things are huge. Like uh, the, the turbines that go into the penstocks uh, are as big as small houses. If you go into the power plants of these things, you can see them actually that just the tops of them, but that doesn't include everything. Like the, st- the stuff that is the uh, impeller below the actual electrical magneto, which is actually generating electricity to power that thing. You have this big propeller thing. It's called an impeller that's pushed. It's not the opposite of an engine turning it. It's actually something turning it. And that thing sits below the, the part that you can see inside the power plant, but those things are huge. So to get that thing up there, I mean, Shasta is sort of landlocked. I don't even know what they did. I mean, they put a, put it on a train and then they got it onto a boat and they moved it up and then up the river. You can just imagine how intensive that operation was, just that. But they moved two turbines up from Shasta. And then to make uh, make it even worse, they were they were built to spin the, the opposite direction as the Grand Coulee was built for. So they had to specially design two like shafts to like get into there temporarily that after the war, they then had more time to then rip those things out, put them back to, I guess, Shasta or somewhere else, and then put in proper propellers. But just the uh, sheer amount of engineering and effort that went into these things, it's it's really mind-boggling. And a book like this, I think, deserves a lot of credit for actually exposing that rich history that is really just not apparent unless you're into this stuff like me and you actually go into the museum and like try to read all this stuff. But um, I appreciate the author for doing this because it's um, it's a really cool untold part of uh, our, our history that a lot of people I don't, I don't think really appreciate. So I think I've gone on enough about the dams uh, during the Depression. I'm going to take a break. What do you want to say, Hans? If you're still how, do I, how do I follow that up? I, I don't know. Uh, no, you brought up uh, hydroelectric and there's a great chapter in the book. It's chapter six. It's called Rivals in Crime. And it really details the hydroelectric projects and the, the history of the the Bureau of Reclamation and Army Corps of Engineers disputes. Um, but he starts off with uh, this passage, which I guess I, I'll read a bit of. Um, and it's uh, on the 16th of August, 1962, Major General William F. Cassidy the director of civil works for the Army Corps of Engineers gave a speech titled The Future of Water Development before a gathering of his peers in Davis, California. And he went on to say, uh, before white men came to America, the general began to estimate that one million Indians inhabited the region between the Canadian border and the Gulf of Mexico. The streams were unpolluted, the forests stood in the plow and not broken the plains. And he kind of go. He's just waxing philosophically about the history of the water reclamation projects and the history of the Army Corps of Engineers. And uh, you go later on in the chapter, and there's a passage from the author. It says uh, it is worth noting a moment to put some of these figures in perspective. In 1962, the total amount of federally built reservoir storage in the nation was somewhere around 300 million acre feet. In 20 years, Cassidy wanted to more than double that. 
Every year, the Mississippi River carries 355 million acre-feet of water out to sea, the runoff of most of the United States from Pennsylvania to Montana. In 20 years, according to the Army Corps of Engineers, we were going to put the equivalent of 90% of that water behind dams. In 1962, there were 37,000 megawatts of installed hydroelectric power generating capacity in the United States. By 1982, it was projected that figure would double. By 1962, nearly all the major rivers in the U.S., long reaches in the Mississippi, the Snake, the Columbia, the Illinois, the Missouri, the Sacramento, the Susquehanna, the Red, the Delaware, the Tennessee, the Appalachia, the Savannah, and the Colorado had been dredged, realigned, straightjacketed, repraped, diked, levied, stabilized, and otherwise made over in order to accommodate barred and freighter traffic. In 20 years, it was projected they were going to add or improve 13,000 more miles. Uh, and, you know, obviously some of this, this book was written uh, decades ago. And some of this didn't actually end up pan out the way the author thought it would. But It first it, came out in 86, apparently. But yeah, the yeah. version I had was like 1991 or something. Yeah. There, there's, it, there's it, like or 90, because it was funny. It was like talking about the Soviet Union still. And it was yeah, just there's, right there's a revised version. I mean, someone really should go back and write the sequel to this. Unfortunately, I think Mark Reisner's dead, so he can't do it. But I don't even know if there's enough qualified people to do it. I mean, it's... Yes, there are people out there who still like work in these dams, but it's a different era today, like where people like don't get book deals like they used to. I mean, there's so much like free stuff out there that in order to dedicate, he probably took years to finish this thing, to have mm -hmm. interviews with people and then have the, the compensation to expect like from all that investment. Um, it's a tall order to expect that from somebody. And so... And if I, if I can circle back for one second, I, I didn't articulate properly, but it, my brain was kind of going on and on. And I, I had a moment to reflect. I didn't articulate why I was confused as to why the Grand Coulee Dam and the Chief Joseph Dam have different power outputs. Because they're on the same river, the Grand Coulee has to send the same amount of water that the G Chief Joseph gets. And the difference is the height of the reservoir. However, what I was going to say was because the increase in pressure from that height causes the flow rate to come out at a faster rate at the bottom of the dam in order to equate the the same number of you know flows or water i think they would have to turn off some of the turbines so that would reduce the power output so i don't know i, I just just that that was my one like what the hell's going on here confusion i'm sure there's some elegant explanation of it but and i do know that pressure goes up the more height you have i get that but you also have a higher flow rate that comes out. And so basically the reservoir would deplete. And so I don't know if it's just the hydroelectric potential. If you had flowed the Grand Coulee at its maximum rate of 6,000 megawatts, but it's, it's average output is the same as Chief Joseph's because they have to match up and coordinate. I don't know. Anyway, just, I think that's a little, a little more clear explanation as to why I'm confused, but go ahead. Just wanted to be clear to anybody who actually does like math and, it's like, why is this guy yeah. not getting it? That's my confusion. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Well, so anyways, um, uh, Reisner notes that, uh, so he says, you know, 19 years later after, so this uh, General Cassidy's prediction in the 60s about, you know, how they were going to continue to build out water infrastructure of all types at the same rate which they had been doing up to that point. You know, it's that it basically, uh, you know, everything had sort of stalled out. 
He says, uh, the 15 billion, which was to construct 320 million acre feet of reservoir storage would barely suffice to build 10 million acre feet of new storage in California had it been politically possible to do it. It was hard to imagine 13,000 miles of new or improved navigable waterways without envisioning barges bumping up against the Rocky Mountains or poking into bulrushes at the headwaters of southern streams. Ever, even had there been money to build all these reservoirs, there wasn't any room for them, as Cassidy was almost willing to admit. In many intensely occupied river basins, he said, using the military jargon in which the Corps is inordinately fond, we faced a difficult task in finding sites for the reservoirs needed to support future growth, thus raising the prospect of a nation requiring so many new dams to feed water and electricity into its hyperventilating economy that it would flood itself right off the land and find itself forced to go about its business aboard houseboats. And it's interesting, you know, if you look up today where the majority of hydroelectric power is generated, it is generated um, uh, it, mostly in the western states. You know, Washington, Oregon, and California are still the top uh, uh, consumers and producers of hydroelectric energy outside of uh, the state of New York. And hydroelectric plays a big role in Montana, in Idaho, in, in Arizona. Uh, part, partly because those particular states have a low population density, and you could you could fulfill the power needs with hydroelectric. Right, right. But you know, it, it does it does go on. To, I mean, that does show that many of the the overall projects and the history that Reisner lays out, it did come to fruition in the sense that hydroelectric did end up playing a big role in the West. You could say a lot of this was successful. Well, one of the one of the funny anecdotes about the Pacific Northwest that the book mentions is that because these dams were so so big, and yeah. you know, after you turn off your war industry where you're building uh, sixty thousand airplanes, I mean, just the sheer number of production uh, is like I think today, like we'll probably put out uh, ten thousand planes maximum per year. That includes little Cessnas, uh, sixty thousand planes uh, over four years. Uh, I think I, I did this map, but it, I don't have the notes in front of me, but it's basically like it's, I think it's one quarter today, the, the, the amount of planes per year. So when you turn that off, um, you don't have Boeing sucking up all that aluminum and smelting it, you know, the Grand Coulee. What do you do with all that power? They were trying to sell it to consumers. And so utilities were like giving away like electric ovens and ranges to get people to like use this stuff. And it was so cheap in the Pacific Northwest that apparently they didn't even insulate their, their houses because insulation was more expensive than just having an electric heater going all the time. Um, so just the, the sheer power that this stuff was, was generating is, is really crazy. Yeah. Well, we, you know, there's another prophetic passage here um, about, you know, sort of the future of these water reclamation projects or the water engineering projects and how uh, they were just weren't, they couldn't keep up with a certain scale anymore. Um, it goes on. In California, when Rick Cassidy gave his speech at the very moment, in fact, where he was giving his speech, the Corps of Engineers was shamelessly trying to steal from the Bureau of Reclamation at least one major project the Bureau had intended to build. It had already been done in several times before, in California and elsewhere, across the entire West, the core, as opportunistic and ruthless an agency as American government has ever seen, was trying to seduce away the Bureau's irrigation constituency. It was toadying up to big corporate farmers who wanted to monopolize whole rivers. 
it was even prepared to defy the president of the United States. As a result, the business of water development was to become a game of chess between two ferociously competitive bureaucracies on a board that was half a continent plus Alaska, where rivers were the ponds and dams the knights and queens used to checkmate the other's ambition. But the Corps and the Bureau played a little too well and a little too long. While they were fighting over a Lake Ontario-sized reservoir in the middle of Alaska and over countless squalid little projects desired by local interests, an unprecedented water crisis was gathering on the Southern High Plains, a crisis tailor-made for their own limitless ambition, which in the end they would do nothing about. The Corps and the Bureau wasted so much money on frivolous projects they didn't solve so much of the nation's water situation as satisfy the greed of powerful interests in their own petty ambitions. Then in the 1980s, despite dozens of new dams and reservoirs built during the intervening years, a water crisis now loomed bigger than that in 1962. Within the next half century, as much irrigated land is likely to go out of production, land that grows nearly 40% of our agricultural exports, the Bureau of Reclamation managed to put into production its entire career. And though projects to rescue those regions remain on the drawing boards, that the age when they might have been built seems to have been passed. And that prediction of his is somewhat correct. That ultimately, you know, the, in, the age of hydraulic infrastructure, the age of hydrological engineering, the age of hydroelectric dam generation, the age of, of building any major waterworks projects, yeah, not just in the western United States, but in most of the United States, outside of perhaps Mississippi uh, tributaries, uh, is passed. I mean, it's passed in the West, it's passed in New England, it's passed in the South. We can barely even get you know river barge ports built anymore. We can barely dredge new ports, you know, let alone build dams or aqueducts or pipelines. Uh, you know, all these major projects um, have been left on the drawing board or were never even drawn up. So. There, there was this expansionary period from the 1880s to, you know, I suppose the 1960s, that really drove this, uh, this sort of civilization-defining infrastructure. But uh, it, it really has faded away, and the, the, the terrifying prospect that Reisner also lays out later in the book is that the populations of these regions are only expected to grow. You know, the population of California continues to grow. The population of Oregon and Washington continue to grow. The population of Idaho is growing. The population of Arizona is somehow growing. Uh, the population of Montana is growing. Where exactly are, are the water resources supposed to come from? Where is the electricity generation going to come from? Nobody has any clear answers. Uh, today, you know, you, you actually, right now, this, at this very moment, you do have um, the Colorado River Authority and uh, the Army Corps of Engineers and 11 state governments fighting it out over who's going to get the remaining portions of the Colorado River water. Uh, you know, you have California and Arizona state governments at each other's throats at this very moment. Which has happened before. And yeah. there was a Supreme Court battle, I want to say, in the 80s, maybe the 70s, about this between Arizona and California. And California actually lost because... I don't know what arguments they were making. Um, it was basically just kind of like a delaying tactic from what I understood, but effectively the, the Arizonans were not getting their share 
however you define that. And I guess that's where the rub is. It's like, well, is it based on population? Well, California has more, so maybe they should get more. Or is it more like the amount of miles of the river that you have? Like there's a million ways you could slice it. And it's not clear to me what the appropriate way is. And I probably don't think the Supreme Court knows either. They just sort of like guessed. But that, that's the crux of like what this comes down to. Like who has a right to water? Colorado had a issue recently where they were um, they were saying that you're not allowed to build a rain collection on your property because that water is a public good and it needs to flow down down the hill or into the aquifer so that it can be captured by everybody else. I mean, in other places, you know, you're not allowed to take from rivers. That's supposed to go downstream, and then farmers might get it. Um, this stuff is it's tricky. It's somewhat arbitrary, and this is why it gets argued over constantly. Yeah. You know, it's it, it, there's another passage in this book about the, uh, uh, the El Nino winter of 1983. And uh, California received... Uh, uh, like triple it's you know sort of average annual precipitation and uh, there were four major dams that the core had built in the state of california and they were they had they were dumping hundreds of thousands of acre feet of water over the spillways and this is like the largest snowpack in the history in california record books going back to the spanish empire and uh, the Corps decided that this was actually a perfect opportunity to build even more water infrastructure, more dams, more reservoirs, more aqueducts, more uh, redirect pipes, more pumping stations. Uh, they had sort of taken on a life of itself, and uh, they didn't really care who, uh, who, who they affected. And it goes on... Uh, uh, El Nino was soon to prove too much even for the big growers and the army engineers. By March of 83, the flooding rivers were out of control, and one of the lake levees was breached, inundating 30,000 acres of farmland. The Tulare Lake Irrigation District immediately applied to the Corps for a permit to pump out the water and send it over the Tulare Basin divide into the San Joaquin River, which feeds San Francisco Bay. There's nothing inherently wrong with that idea. The bay and the delta normally can use all the fresh water they can get, except that at least one of the reservoirs upstream had been illegally planted with a species of fish called white bass. White bass are a voracious, opportunistic, highly adaptable type of rough fish and love to eat young salmon and striped bass. Unless a fish screen below the pumps could generate, could guarantee that 100% of the white bass would be removed before entering the San Joaquin, the bay and the delta's two most vulnerable commercial sports fish would be threatened with extinction. Just a handful of escaped white bass of opposite sexes could be enough to seal their doom. Even though no fish screen was ever operated 100% effectively, the Corps of Engineers, ignoring a cacophony of protests from sportsmen in several states, issued another emergency permit in October. The growers hadn't even waited for the permit. The pumps were all in place and ready to operate, and television reporters arrived to a take a look at things were scared away by armed guards the pumps howled to life minutes after the permit was issued the california department of fish and game had strung a gill net across the river below the fish green just in case 
And it kind of goes on that the Corps ended up just not caring about this and went on to build additional infrastructure that wasn't exactly needed because this is sort of a once-in-a-lifetime event. And they spent huge amounts of capital, both political and financial and physical, uh, to build additional water infrastructure in California that would end up being unused. Um, ironically, this was sort of the last great flooding of California. Uh, it was in the 80s. And California has been on a decline ever since. In fact, most of the West has been on a decline. In water well, th there were since. some El Ninos in the 90s also. Not, not, at, this, not at this scale. Right. Not, not right. that would, yeah, I mean, and they, there were, yes, you're right. But none of them generated that level of interest again in building more infrastructure and getting in these political fights. Um, sort there, of the there, was will, a, will there was an example exist. in the book from, I think, the 60s, actually, or maybe the 50s. Um, it was the Eel River. I don't know if you right. read that passage, but it was um, it was pretty insane. I mean, they, they had, um, I don't know where this is exactly. It's somewhere in California, but... It uh, now has dams, but it didn't for a while. And there was, um, you know, when you, when you build buildings, they have these provisions for things like 100-year floods or whatever. And it's basically just a guess. Like, they look at records, and if the records don't exist, they, they're really just really guessing, not just sort of guessing. And apparently that they, they didn't know that this river was uh, flood-prone, or potential to flood. And so what happened was this, um, this river, I think it like tripled or something in size and the water level got so high that there were trees that had water marks on them that hadn't gotten broken by it. That were like three stories, um, high. It was like a 70 foot column of water just suddenly showed up and basically just broke all the, the houses off their foundations. Uh, it, it's wild. It's wild how weather can shift like that. Yeah. It is absolutely wild. Yeah, especially in a dry part of the world. That, that That's what's crazy. It's like, yeah, you kind of expect it in Mississippi you know, to have these big floods. That's where the army Corps still has like a big job as flood control out there. But, um, you know, when you don't have rain, I remember I was in, uh, Nevada once and I, I was in, uh, maybe red rock Canyon or something, which is like this beautiful, but it's a desert. I mean, it's like this desert and it, uh, it started raining. <laughs> it was like, what? <laughs> That happens? <laughs> Apparently, yeah. Once in a while. It's just it's just very rare. But it does happen. And when you're not prepared for it, it's probably worse because you, you don't expect it. Like it's it's that much more worse because you don't have any provisioning for this weird possibility. It's like uh, you know, snowing in uh, Los Angeles or something. It's like people wouldn't know what to do. You know, it's just skidding all over the roads or something. So it's that sort of volatility that it's not even volatility, it's more like um tail risk they call it in finance when you have a very infrequent but very catastrophic uh, potential that that's when it, you get really um really surprised and in trouble when you're in the planning stages of things and it's hard to plan for events like that so that's why a lot of engineering is overbuilt because it's just 
you're, you're planning for the absolute conceivable or realistically conceivable worst case. And even then, you know, it's, it's not possible to plan for everything. You, you can't plan for asteroids, you know, smashing into your roof <laughs> unless you dedicated the entire country's GDP to building an asteroid shield and it probably still wouldn't work. So it's just, it's, it's just hard. It's just, these are hard problems and well, you have they're trade-offs. They're extremely difficult. Yeah. I mean, there, there's a, there's a, there's a great passage in the book um, uh, that I bookmarked that I think just explains all of this and it's told so succinctly and it's just uh, the difference in climate between the eastern and western U.S., the fact that the eastern generally gets enough rainfall to support agriculture and life while the west generally does not is easily the most significant distinction between the two regions and divides America truly in half. There's also obvious there are significant distinctions within each region as well. For example, oranges grow well in central Florida. They do not in South Carolina, a few hundred miles north. In the West, however, climactic differences are far more striking and extreme than these may occur within the same state, even within the same county. In the Willamette Valley of Oregon, a farmer can raise a number of different crops without irrigation. There is usually a summer drought, but it is short, and even if he decides not to depend entirely on rainfall, Few inches of irrigation water instead of the 100 inches used by some farmers in California, Arizona will usually do. Two hours away on the east side of the Cascades, rainfall drops to a third of what the Willamette Valley ordinarily receives. Not only that, but the whole of eastern Oregon is much higher than the section west of the Cascades and lacks a marine influence, so the climate is far colder. It can be above 40, zero, 40 above zero in Eugene and 10 below zero in Bend, a two-hour drive to the east. In eastern Oregon, not only must a farmer irrigate, but he's extraordinarily limited compared to his Willamette Valley counterpart in the types of crops he can grow. And around Bakersfield, an irrigation farmer can raise the same crops that one sees growing in Libya, southern Italy, Hawaii, and Iraq, pistachios, kiwis, almonds. An hour's drive away across the Tehachapi Mountains lies the Antelope Valley, a high desert region with a cold interior climate that can bring frost in May and where little but alfalfa can be grown. Both Bakersfield and Antelope Valley are within Kern County, whose climactic extremes are rather typical of California and the wider American West, and for that matter, of many counties throughout the United States. Air conditioners and furnaces in two relatively nearby towns, Phoenix and Flagstaff, may be running at the same time. One end of a county may be plagued by floods, while another is plagued by drought. Uh, and, this, and he goes on, the reason for all of these problems is mainly topographic. The mountains that block weather fronts and seal off the interior from the ocean, summer cooling and winter warmth. The tectonic upheavals that push much of the interior west, even the flat mountainous sections to elevations higher than a mile. The significance of it from the standpoint of water development is that it makes an infinitely greater economic sense to build dams and irrigate in warmer regions than colder ones, even if it makes an infinitely greater political sense to do otherwise. So, you know, sort of very just succinctly shows right there that this is a, is a kind of a wide cavalcade of problems, political, topographic, economic strategic and it is remarkable that all of this actually went off and became uh, a civilization in the american west is it what, what you read the book and you're just struck how 
any of this even came together and how amazing it was that it's lasted this long. Um, no other civilization has accomplished this and, and allowed it to actually continue to flourish. Uh, the book you, you does could, end. You could argue that one, but I think it's it's up there in terms not of... At, not at this scale. Not at this scale. I don't know. If you look at China... We'll see how long that lasts. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Sure, yeah. I guess they're the only, they're the only competitors for sort of the scale and length of time. You know, one of their uh, – and that this just goes to show you that the sheer contrast in the leadership types in the two countries. But uh, Zhang Zemin, I believe, was a hydrological engineer. Uh, and basically all their, all their premiers are engineers. Xi Jinping uh, – I think he's a chemical engineer. Um, Hu Jintao, <sighs> civil engineer. I, I, I they're all engineers. <laughs> so they build stuff. And you know, we're what are our leaders? They're lawyers or sales, television, game show hosts? I mean, I, I don't know. It's it's a it's a freaking joke. So yeah, back in the the day, we used to have like generals. You know, sometimes Eisenhower maybe that that's sort of a step up from a lawyer in my book. Uh, but during the uh, heyday of the Bureau of Reclamation, they had this guy, um, Bill Dominey, who was not an engineer. It's sort of interesting, actually, the contrast. Um, and in our system, actually, being an engineer in Washington is sort of a disadvantage in our system. Now, in China, which is more authoritarian, you don't actually have to argue as much. You're just sort of doing what you're told. And so if you have the authority, you can dictate projects. But in the 50s... In the 60s, really, when the peak of the dam building was going on, uh, just by number, um, the Bureau had this uh, sort of very engineering leadership culture, which was good for building dams, but it was not very good for getting projects approved because congressmen are stupid. Like, they, they don't understand anything these engineers are saying. And so they had to get somebody else in there who actually could explain to them why these projects were valuable to them, like to their district, to their electorate, you know, their, their base. And he, he was a good salesman basically. And he shows yeah. the hell out of these guys to the point where he was like best friends with the appropriations committee chairman. Uh, I want to say like Bill Hayden or something um, who approved these projects. And this guy was a, I think he was a Democrat from Arizona. Um, and it was, probably him that got the central Arizona project done, which is effectively the equivalent of what California did for Los Angeles. It basically moved water from the Colorado through Phoenix down to Tucson. And it, it made the growth of the suburban sprawl that you see today in Arizona possible. Um, so I'm touching on a few birds with one stone there, but we'll, uh, you know, we'll, we'll dive in a little bit more as we have some time, but um, how this was possible was, was a combination of forces and, and people. And this Bill Dominey guy was kind of a, a womanizer. And so he, uh, just a big ego and very charismatic and kind of a tyrant to his people. Uh, it, it was really funny though. There was an example of how, how good he was at getting projects finished and approved. Um, they wanted a new headquarters, uh, at least a division headquarters. And so they, they had something, I think in Denver, that was, uh, their, their main operations out in the West and he, they couldn't get funding apparently for a new building. And this thing was this 
kind of rundown facility before they got the new one. And in order to get the new one built, um, he classified it as a dam <laughs> under their you know purview of like what they're supposed to be doing. And then he he's like, oh, it turns out that we don't need the dam part, but by that time the building was finished or something. And so just like weird, goofy <laughs> stuff like that. Just like, you know, people involved in these... Like an engineer would never do that. Like you'd be like, "Oh, well, we need a building." And you're like, blah blah blah. You'd be very like straightforward. Know. Met some met some uh, some real goofball engineers. <laughs> like have, have certainly done stuff like that. But um, yeah, maybe you're right. I don't know. It's just I'm I'm trying to create a contrast that maybe doesn't. Exist yes, yeah, no, they, but the, you're right. The contrast works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Didn't mean to cut you off. I was just I was trying to no, cover no, no. a couple of bases here. So, well, all right. I, I wanted to mention California again because the uh, Owens Valley. I think we established that it's not sufficient for the current size of the Los Angeles region, population-wise. And so the question obviously comes up: like, well, where are they getting the water? Um, I do believe they do have. I think it's San Diego they have desalination, but I don't think LA gets much the, of anything. The desalination desal. projects in California have been a, a, an eternal pipe dream for 50 years, and they're going to be a, an eternal pipe dream for another 50 years. Well, if they would build nuclear power like, like they should, they, they could the, easily the problem, do it. Yeah, the problem, you're right, is there's a massive electricity cost to running desalination plants. Extreme. Um, particularly at the scale that they would require. Yeah, the way the way it works, you have two main technologies that exist today to remove salt from seawater, so you can drink it. FYI, don't drink seawater if you didn't know that. It's not um, just removing the salt, by the way. There's particularly off at this point. There's there's an entire process that they're going to need to tack on to the desalination plants, which which they don't often mention. Removing what pollution. disposal of the brine. No, 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 no. Removing it's not removing pollution from the water. It's not just it's not just salt. Removing other mineral elements. Um, yeah, but that's a standard process life. for any potable water. You have a treatment facility, and so what right, what but, is different about seawater versus land sourced water? So my point is that you you need the treatment. You would need new treatment facilities because the current what I had read at one point was that the current treatment facilities in California and the West Coast are not adequate enough to hmm. uh, ingest new sources of water right from a desalination plant. So they, they would need to build basically an entire shadow infrastructure of water treatment facilities alongside the desalination plants, which doubles the problem. Uh, and number like and as we were just saying, the, the electricity component is fundamentally like insurmountable for uh, California and its current sort of energy portfolio. They would either need to find a way to uh, construct, I, I don't know, 10 new oil refineries or 10 new natural gas refineries, or they'd have to build 20 new nuclear power plants. It, 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 it's just undoable. The whole thing is undoable. Well, it, re refineries are for distilling uh, oil, but you're talking about power plants. And California used to get a lot of power from oil, but that's not true anymore. It's mainly natural gas. So that that's the power plant. You'd have to have a natural gas turbine. 
system, I think is what you're saying, just to be. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Detailed about it. Um, and I, I was just, if anybody's curious, I have actually studied a little bit of how desal works. It's uh, it, it's intuitive. It's nothing like, okay, it's partly maybe why it's not that energy uh, cheap. You have two ways. One is you boil the stuff and you distill the water out of the seawater. And that takes a lot of energy, obviously, to heat water up, um, especially if you're creating it at volume. And then the other way is filtering it. And if you actually look at how these filters work, um, they're, the filtration media, which clog up, by the way, are super, super thick because they they have to get this stuff out of the, the, the salts out of the water. Uh, in order to do that, you have to have these fine meshes layered on top of each other. And whenever you have a an obstruction to something, you have to have energy to overcome that obstruction. So you have to shove all that water through these thick, thick membranes. And that takes a lot of energy too. So until there's some sort of like magical formula, chemical or otherwise for getting fresh water out of the sea. Yeah. We're, we're going to still going to be stuck with this energy conundrum, which is, you know, another side of any equation, right? Anytime you do anything, you need energy. Um, so, um, going to how California gets its water now versus what it might do in the future, which is desalination. Uh, it basically the Southern California, I should say Northern California is self-sufficient in water, but Southern California is not. So it has to import it. So where does it get it from? Well, some of it's from the Colorado. Some of it's from places like Owens Valley, which are sort of tangentially Southern California, at least nearby. But another place is Northern California, where there's a lot of water, uh, at least historically. Recently, not not as much. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe back in the Spanish Empire, there's a lot of water. There. Yeah. Now it's it's. Uh, it's pretty bad. It's bad. Yeah. yeah. It's really but, bad. But we they've 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 effectively entered uh, severe drought conditions even in some regions which were still like lush grassy, you know, meadows just a few years ago are are, are dead now. It, it it's bad. It, it's sad and and bad and it makes me mad. But the um maybe make some people glad. I don't know. I, I'm not one of these like, Hey, <laughs> screw California. Cause then, then they're just going to go somewhere else, which, which we don't want. So I actually, I'm very pro California. I'd like California yeah, I, to, to a, get better. I'm a, I'm a Californian irredentist. I, uh, <laughs> I hope California stay in California. Over, it's the yeah, best in the world. Stays. Never leave. <laughs> so we By all the way, a lot, of the, a lot of the, for their listeners, a lot of the people that live in those regions of Northern California are, uh, are are quite nice they're normal um they uh, they contribute in little ways to the economy a lot of old sawmill towns and mining towns it still do some of it uh anyways you shouldn't beseech those people to some sort of horrific fate they are definitely compatriots i wouldn't uh, and also uh, not all californians are nancy pelosi voters they it's just true. have they've just been overwhelmed by decades of illegal immigration tipping the scales in favor of the Democrats and they've basically taken over. And so it's like, okay, well, yeah, a lot of the problem is from that sector, but 
a lot of them in Northern California in particular, like the big Northern, you know, far, far North are, you know, there's a state of Jefferson movement. They want to leave, you know, from Sacramento. I mean, it's very complicated, but anyway, um, so Northern California is a big source and how do they get it down there? Well, in between, uh, well, in the middle of the state, it's, it's this giant, uh, I I think the whole thing is called San Joaquin, but it's, it's the central Valley. I, yeah. I don't know if San Joaquin is just the southern part, but uh, the Central Valley of California is effectively this like 400 mile long farm belt that you can see it from space. It's it's literally giant yeah, it, and it's actually valley. not naturally um, that green. It's just it has yeah. the right soil conditions and temperatures to make it green, provided you get water to it. And so California actually built its own irrigation system to do this. It wasn't federal. It wasn't Bureau of Reclamation or Army Corps. It was actually back when the state actually got things done, you know, unlike state water project, high speed rail system, which is going from the great locations of Sacramento to Fresno. (laughs) Who wants to take that trip? But the migrant um, farm workers are going to take that train. Yeah. It's going to be Gavin Newsom going down to his voters, his illegal voters, but it's, um, and, and Victor Davis Hanson watches from afar, but it's, uh, (laughs) 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 wondering why it all went bad, but (laughs) he's just on the train, you know, like, Recording his uh, his his podcast, which is well, he works at Stanford. Forty seven percent ads for he, uh, for life insurance. Well, you know, he's on the train from Merced to Modesto. And he's just surrounded by uh, you know four four foot nine like <laughs> field workers working plants in the desert now. Yeah, like it's such a brisk oh civilizational picture. Yeah, he he's almost. I mean, well, I don't know. I, we'll leave him aside, but um, he's a good guy. I, I like him, but um, <laughs> yeah, he's he's still unfortunately stuck in the different era where he doesn't see certain things. I think, but um, in any case, um, the the water flows from the north to the south through the central uh, valley, and on the way, it, it gets dumped into these really even like as a younger person, I was aware of this stuff and I I saw pictures of these things and I'm like, why is the water in these open air canals? Like that's going to, it gets hot, you know, in that part of, you know, the country, like in a Bakersfield, for example, like the temperature is like a hundred and it's almost like as bad as Phoenix. Um, And that's, that's a Southern part. The book touches on San Joaquin Valley. They've actually depleted their, uh, aquifer is pretty bad, I think. And it's well, it's so bad well, that they've. Uh, I mean, the it's actually impacting, ironically, the existing uh, uh, hydrological infrastructure. So there, you know, the the valley floor throughout the Central Valley has eroded or or uh, collapsed so much that the canals and the levees are actually shifting in place or cracking because the soil around them has effectively. Uh, moved or it's changed its composition uh it, it, totally insane uh you know the, the 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 irony is that they will end up destroying the underground aquifers to the point where they cannot be replenished they will probably do 
considerable damage to the above ground or, or, or sort of engineered uh, water infrastructure to the point where it's very costly to repair if there ever is a real source of water in California again. Well, so the above ground stuff, it, um, it is in these canals and you can like drive over them and they're just everywhere and they're losing to evaporation, but also the, the, the just the, okay. So when these projects are built, um, they're sort of, at least the way they used to be built, they're, they're designed in a way that is like, okay, we're, we're basically heavily subsidizing one sector of the economy. But the idea is once that sector grows, it will then feed back into other areas, you know, such as housing construction and uh, obviously distribution businesses for farmed goods and all that stuff. So it's sort of a more total accounting system. They're they're actually in the book, they talk about river basin accounting, which is a different thing, but it's using like hydropower, which pays the bills to like subsidize the, the flood control stuff. But it's analogous to that. It's not the same thing, but what they do is they give these farmers like, it's like three cents per acre foot or something. It's, it's insanely cheap. Like the, the amount of water that they get. And when you get something for nothing, like what do you do? Well, you're, you're sort of lazy about it. You kind of waste it. Uh, so they, they just kind of dump it all over the place and it, it just floods their fields and um, that takes a lot of water and, and to the point where they're running out of it. And so they have to tap into the aquifer and then there's the ground sinks and then the aquifer runs out and then you're really screwed. But to top it off, to make it all, like literally to, to make it even more vexing a problem. Um, and, and by the way, I mean, it's a problem that is like produced a lot of solutions. I mean, the, the fact that California like exports like. $50 billion of fruit, you know, is like not nothing. Like the fact that it feeds a lot of people who aren't paying the cost of this stuff, like it, it's, it's a benefit, right? So it's not all like bad, but if you want to have a system, you have to fix problems. Okay. It, yes. In order to do it, like there has to be a benefit. Um, but if that benefit is worth keeping in order to keep it going, you have to fix the problems. And so one of the problems is uh, salination, the opposite of desalination, <laughs> So what's happening is, um, so when you have a, a, just mind you, like how, how the, the ocean got salty, by the way, it wasn't that like the water that like formed when the, the, uh, the earth like coalesced out of its like, uh, primordial, uh, bits of solar dust or whatever it was, uh, what do they call that planetary like rock? I don't know. Whenever that happened, there wasn't like a bunch of salty water floating around in space that like collected on the surface of the earth. I mean, it was just water. It was just, you know, hydrogen and oxygen stuck together. And, uh, what happened was, um, these, uh, you know, the oceans would, would get heated by the sun. This is the sort of hydrological cycle, where you have uh, solar radiation heating water to the point where it, it evaporates, forms clouds. Those clouds get blown around, then they land up or wind up over land. And when it gets uh, cold enough and, and there's enough water concentration, they rain. Uh, they rain their water out back onto the land. Well, that, that water then hits the earth, and there's there's minerals in, in the sort of uh, exposed uh, areas of land that are rained on. And some of that contains, uh, salt and salt is, um, soluble in water, they call it. And so it basically dissolves. It doesn't sink to the bottom 
uh, it basically becomes part of the concentrate that is formed out of uh, water plus salt. And so when the rivers are discharging the rain into the ocean, they're carrying with them because uh, like the sediments will will go down as well, but then that sediment falls onto the bottom of the ocean. It doesn't like stay in solution. And so, and some of that sediment also like just gets trapped, you know, in deltas and, and the rivers and everything. So that, that eventually doesn't get stuck in the water, but what gets stuck is the salt. So the salt is carried actually off land and then into the ocean. And then over millions of years of this happening, eventually the salinity of the ocean increases, increases, increases to the point where it's really different than what the water is coming off the rivers. But the rivers actually have salt too. That's the original source or the, the secondary source of, of the salt. And so when you have an irrigation system that is coming from river water, it has a little bit of salt in it. And if you dump it onto a field and you don't wash that off, effectively is what a river does normally when it's like washing out to sea. It basically just, it lands on a place like San Joaquin Valley, which has no outlet and it, it, it's flood irrigated. And then that water then just sinks down or it evaporates, but it le- the salt doesn't evaporate. That's like one of the techniques, right? Of desalinization, you evaporate the water to get distilled water, but the solution is brine. Well, that brine is collecting in the friggin' aquifers now to the point where their well water is salty. Now, I don't know what the percentage is compared to seawater, but it's getting noticeable. And the pattern is clear that it's getting saltier. And eventually it's going to get to the point where that water is not usable. And the book lays out some really good historical analogs to this to like really reinforce that this is a big issue is that the, he, the author and based on probably archeologists or anthropologists, I guess, um, research is that the, the civilizations of, um, the one that actually you can still see like the cave dwellings in Arizona. It's pretty cool. I've, I've actually seen some of them. Um, there were Indian tribes, uh, long time ago at some point, we don't exactly know when they left or died, but they were actually agricultural in North America. Like a lot of people know about the central American, um, Indians having farming cultures like the Aztecs and the Incans, Mayans and stuff. But, uh, North America had a few of those and they were in places like Arizona, which is really dry, but how do you pull that off? Well, you, I guess, irrigate. And so because it's not naturally a, a irrigated region, they had that salinity problem that that's building up in places like San Joaquin Valley. Another example he gives is, and by the way, they, they disappeared. And so the speculation is that the salt actually made farming not possible anymore. And that might happen in California. Uh, if they don't drain it, basically they have to like wash it, wash it, wash the salt out. Another example he gave was, um, in, uh, Samaria or Babylon and the, um, the region, uh, the Tigris and Euphrates, the rivers that go through Iraq now, uh, were, were there historically, but that region used to be called the fertile crescent because the irrigation from those two rivers was, uh, so useful in producing agriculture that they were considered like one of the most bountiful regions for agriculture uh, in the known world at the time. But it is pretty provable that from the same process of this flood irrigation, it actually salinated the soils to the point where today in Iraq, 
according to the book, 20% of Iraq's previously usable farmland is now, it's, it's, it's not desertified. It's, it's more like, uh, it's just saltified, like for lack of a more technical or eloquent term, it's just, it's too salty to grow anything in. And so they, they actually destroyed their, their own farmland from this irrigation stuff. The exception to that, the book points out, is Egypt. Because, and they, they went on for thousands of years, this, this technique, because the Nile, um, it naturally floods the farmland of the, the Nile Delta at, at the sort of where Cairo is. It's like the sort of northern part of Egypt. And what that does is it deposits two things and then subtracts the third thing. It deposits water. It deposits sediment or silt, which is really good for growing crops. And then it subtracts the salt because it washes it into the Mediterranean. That worked for 2000 years. What's not happening anymore though, and that Egypt is going to have this problem and they actually already are having this problem is that because they built that dam, the Soviets, I think helped them build it in the fifties, the Aswan dam. Um, they don't have those floods anymore. And so all they get now is just the regular discharge from the dam that is like the steady stream that doesn't flood the Delta. And so what they do is they, I, I think they irrigate that, but they don't have the flood anymore. They just have these controlled canals that sort of, when I say flood irrigation, it's, it's basically a very low flood. It's not like, you know, your house is being washed away. So obviously they don't want to wash away their infrastructures. They don't allow the, the big floods that used to happen. But what they would do is they would plant after the flood harvest and then get the hell out of there like historically. And then the big flood would come in, you know, I don't know how many feet of water that was, but probably above, you know, man's height. And then they would basically be on the banks waiting for it to recede. Then they would go back in and plant. And that system worked because it removed the salts. They don't have that anymore. And so the same thing is happening there. It happened in Samaria. It's happening in California. Um, so this is sort of a hidden uh, problem that irrigation uh, actually creates. And uh, another problem that the book points out that um, is not really easily solved, it's, it's a known problem, but when you build a dam, you and Colorado River is a good example of this because the Colorado is um, really, really muddy historically. Um, it's basically just, you know, washing off the Rocky mountains into the river. And, uh, there's a lot of you know, topsoil from the trees and everything. And so that, that gets into the river. So it used to be Brown. It used to be like this soup of mud that would flow down. And so when you build, put a dam in that, in front of that, it basically stops the speed of the water from churning all that stuff up. It gets really, really it widens out, it slows down. And so what, what does that, ha what does that do? Because the turbulence isn't there to kick up the sediment, the sediment falls down and then you get this clean water. And because the way the Hoover dam works, it's got its inlet, uh, tanks at the top. You could see them now they're really exposed because there's a huge drought in Lake Mead, but you can see the inlet tubes are these spires that stick up right behind the dam that are not getting any water. I mean, they might have lower down ports, but, um, I mean, they must because they, they're obviously, um, di still discharging the dam. I guess they can sort of wait till it fills up to the right, that right point, but 
to the lowest point at which they have a discharge point, it's, it's now like not, not above that. So when you're at full water, you're getting this really clean water at the top that's going into the penstock and out the other side. So you get this fresh water that comes out. Um, and that, that's, that's good. It's not a, not, not a bad thing to have fresh water, but it, uh, on the other side, you have dirty water, literally, which is accumulating. And so you have all this dirt that builds up behind the dam and eventually it, it, it fills it. And so your dam is basically useless at that point. So you could dredge it, which is what they do in harbors. The problem is you, you know, you, you, a dredging system, dredging barge, if people don't know what that is, it's basically, it's a crane that sits on this big flat barge that drops a, a bucket with, you know, it's sort of a half, half and half bucket split in half that has jaws on it that then clamps down. You drop it into the, the water, the jaws hit the bottom and then you actuate the the jaws to close and you, you scoop the dirt up, you, you hoist the crane up and then you then maneuver it over on top onto the flat part of the barge and you dump the soil onto it. Imagine doing that every year at whatever scale that would require moving the barge off to the side of the lake, then picking that mud up and having to figure out where to put it. And the book doesn't go into like the math on this, but they basically say that you'd have to have like train loads of this shit coming out every year. And there, then you have like, well, where do you put it? I mean, I've seen excavation road excavation projects that have like fleets of trucks picking up boulders and like they clog the highway. I mean, it's, it's crazy. Um, so from traditionally muddy river, you'd have to have probably thousands of train loads of this stuff going somewhere else. Um, who knows where, and then you have a mound of dirt, piling up literally into a mountain it's it's a it's an unknown like it's it's a hidden problem that exists with these hydrological structures that do create a lot of value but they limit their life and then they create tail problems at the end that i think are are real un not not really solved issues um that i think are interesting problems to work on but full disclosure like these things are not um not perfect systems uh, and, and I'm, I'm generally a fan of hydroelectric power and hydroelectric dams because they, they do provide a relatively clean and renewable and relatively inexpensive source of electricity and they provide flood control and all this stuff. But it, it's sort of an issue that has not been figured out. There was an example in the book also from uh, China that they built a dam in the 60s, 1960, that had to close in 1964 because it, it got so clogged with silt that it was basically useless. So four year, four years of your dam, it's probably not a good return on your investment. Uh, the book goes into like uh, return on investments a lot, and some of these projects that did get built were like twenty five cents on the dollar. So you 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 have a hundred million dollar dam, and you get twenty five million dollars in in value return to like the, the the constituency, and basically the the rest of it was was tax dollars dumped into a special interest like a construction company. Um, so that's that's not a good return. You want to have something that is uh, positive, obviously. And then they were playing with discount rates. We don't need to get into that, but it's um, it's a good, it's a really good book, and it, it articulates a lot of these issues. and And I said earlier, like, okay, is it is it pro or con? Like all this stuff. I don't really think it's like con, if it had to be honest with itself, or at least the author. But um, I think it does a good job of articulating some of these unknown issues like salination and sedimentation that happen with these structures, 
that I think a lot of people don't take into account because they're very slow processes that build up over obviously a long period of time. And it's, it's a very subtle and quiet problem, but I have not seen a very satisfactory answer to either of them. Frankly, um, the Hoover dam has an estimated sedimentation life of about a hundred years, but then that got mitigated down cause it's, it was built in the thirties. So we're coming up on it's, it's like anniversary, right? But there was a, um, there was a, a caveat to that because they built, um, I think Glen Canyon, which is higher upstream. Those dams, like that dam plus I think another one, um, actually capture most of the silt now. So Hoover doesn't have that issue anymore, but those dams do. So I guess unless we start building more and more and more dams or we start dredging everything, uh, these these resources are actually gonna gonna run out, which is another thing to, to take into account. Because if we don't have nuclear power or solar power or wind or natural gas facilities to accommodate those uh, drawdowns, you know, we're going to have issues. And there was a, there was some research I did on very preliminarily, but just on like, what is the state of the, uh, the hydroelectric and flood control dams and everything in the United States. And if I'm not mistaken, I think it was 16% according to the article, um, are in a bad state of repair. So if you don't maintain these, even with, you know, setting aside the, uh, sedimentation issues with, with uh, large dams, um, concrete eventually, you know, erodes. It's not, it's not, you know, even rock erodes, but it's basically artificial rock. So it eventually, you know, has cracks that develop. These things need to be rebuilt. There's several dams that I've, I've actually studied that have had to actually just been replaced and just redone. Um, and since we get such bad scores every year from the American society of civil engineers on our general state of infrastructure, you can only imagine with all the environmental restrictions and how difficult it's going to be to rebuild or build new dams now. So this, this era of dam building, which really peaked in the sixties and started tapering off because of project opportunities going away, but also because we haven't really talked about it, but in the seventies, the uh, environmental movement really started kicking up and it, um, started putting huge limits on these projects. Uh, classic example was in California. They had a, these really epic uh, salmon runs that would go up the, um, I guess, Sacramento River, whatever river that is, that goes up into uh, into the mountains. And because there's so many dams and flood control systems in place, uh, the salmon can't really get up there anymore. Uh, and they've built fish ladders, which are these sort of workarounds that, that sit on the side of a dam that that sends out a little bit of water over a spillway under these like sort of concrete steps that fish can sort of get up, but it still is not like um, as effective as a river for whatever reason, uh, just a natural rocky bottom of a, of a river. And so the, the salmon runs have been pretty depleted partly because of that. A lot of it is fishing and pollution maybe, but um, so that's, that's a drawback. Um, and then people who are concerned about that, they started raising hell about the construction of these things. And so there's just been a huge drawdown in new dam construction. And in order to just maintain our existing fleet, um, compounded with that problem, compounded with the, the cost of capital now going up with inflation, 
the the lack of like, I don't know motivation, frankly, like you know, the workers and who built the Hoover Dam and the Golden Gate Bridge just don't exist anymore. But they, they, they just you know they're I don't want to call them lazy. I mean, construction is annoying, difficult work. I've done it, and it's it's not easy. But you also have modern equipment and OSHA and all that crap, and so the the conditions are easier. They just are, and and to marshal though a workforce with today's you know population, I think it's a lot harder too. So, and we're not China. We can't just dictate these things, and we can't just you know imprison environmental protesters like I'm sure they do. Um, so I don't know what the future of hydroelectric power is going to look like. What do you think, Hans? I think hydroelectric in the United States is dead. I think that the United States will actually um, shift back towards coal and will uh, expand its natural gas usage. I, I think natural gas. I, yes, I'm, I'm very, I don't. I don't think coal is coming back. I don't I think, think coal's coal is. I think coal will come back. We I have a lot of natural gas, and so the only I, argument I for am, coal is that we have a I lot might of it. Be, but... uh, in the minority or extreme minority, but I think coal will come back, and I think that uh, it's come back in Germany, but that's because they don't have gas. I know, but I, I think it, it will you know? come back in abundance here, and it'll become yeah. uh, an energy portfolio mainstay uh, for the most part. If there was a war, it, it would. Yeah, if we had. And to, I, I think that it. the problem with hydroelectric is that it's so the ability to grow hydroelectric footprint beyond what it is now uh, would would run into all the problems that you just laid out about why we can't exactly build new water infrastructure. So we're not going to be having a lot more hydroelectric. I think that the existing hydroelectric infrastructure will probably be repaired enough to an extent or it will be slightly improved, um, but it will not fulfill any great function. I think that the hydroelectric era in the United States is totally dead, and instead we're going to go on a, a you know sort of small path for a decade and a half at most on a renewables train, and it will fade and uh, we will probably uh, begin a wider utilization of natural gas, uh, coal, in the long run. And hydroelectric will be like nuclear. It'll be sort of a, it'll be maintained. It might be slightly built out. It might be slightly improved. But it'll just be sort of a, uh, a remnant of a certain era in the United States when we did that kind of project, just like nuclear is. It's a remnant of a time when we did nuclear. I think there is a better chance, however, for nuclear to come back. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think that nuclear has a bigger chance than hydroelectric of gaining sort of an energy portfolio mix, uh, and they're both pretty slim. I think that the future of the United States is is hydrocarbon. No matter what they try, it'll be a hydrocarbon uh, fueled economy. Um, the and the issue with hydroelectric as well is that you know much of the existing research seems to indicate now that the American West will go through these long patterns of drought with the occasional flooding and if you're planning sort of a longer strategic vision, which they didn't necessarily have the full picture of at the time, and they were building these damn projects, uh, 
you might think to yourself, well, why would we invest in the water infrastructure? Why would we invest in these regions anymore? If these regions are prone to these longer-term cycles, then they're actually not very stable. And I think that not only will hydroelectric fade as a viable option, I think a lot of the American West will fade as a viable civilization. And I think that many of the... I wouldn't go that far. Well, I think that many of the projects to reclaim the Great Basin, Southwest, uh, Arizona, Nevada, Southern California, uh, will fall into disrepair. And the American West long term will look more like how it was intended to look in the 1860s. Coastal regions with a couple waypoints in between, uh, sort of the primary drivers and wide utilization of agriculture, wide industry will not be possible. And it wouldn't be the first time, you know, civilization has sort of tried to expand into an area and receded or given up on certain things. Uh, and the United States is a young country. This was a very, very recent expansion. And it's totally possible that it recedes within our lifetimes or perhaps our children's lifetimes. I think we're already seeing regional reallocations. Yeah. You know, people leaving California, going to Arizona, Oregon, uh, Idaho, Nevada, surrounding states basically. But um, well, aside from it, California, I, I, I think the problem is really California where it really is overpopulated. They don't have the political ability to get big things done. Um, I think there are brighter prospects for the surrounding states. Utah, you know, it's it's got the sort of homogenous Mormon contingent that I think is pretty well coordinated. They have a long history of water management. I think there's brighter prospects there. Um, Arizona is a weird one because they really don't have a lot of water except for the Colorado, and they keep growing. And I think they're going to run into similar issues as California, frankly, eventually, because they're, they're getting blue. They're having the same stupid demographic Well, they're going to run into and... very, very uh, troublesome resource allocation problems. Within 20 years, you know, I, I think that Arizona Arizona is growing at a ridiculous rate, given its long-term. I mean, they're even building, and I, I still just don't get it, but I think it's just like, government incentives but they're building semiconductor plants in one of the hottest parts of the country one of the driest parts of the country for a system that requires massive amounts of water so the reason why is that there are very specific uh, laws in the arizona books around construction projects and uh, this is why there's actually just been so much expansion in general and there's been a huge amount of commercial real estate development in Arizona for this reason. It's it's incredibly easy to invest in the construction industry. And there's a lot less regulations. Uh, the state government even gives out credits for some construction. So that's part of the reason why. The other reason is that it's political. You know, uh, the, the administration or the people in charge bring semiconductor manufacturing back to America. Uh, we hailed as heroes at this point because it's become such a topical issue. I, I'm and not against you, you it for it, the record. Well, I, it's you, just, I, I'm, I'm for, why couldn't yeah, they pick fine. a better location? Is all but, I'm saying. Well, 
you know, Arizona is a politically uh, difficult state to pin down now. And the people in charge who bring this to Arizona will have a massive political edge. So, yes, it's silly from a resource utilization perspective, and it will probably impact Arizona very poorly in the long term. But it is the expedient uh, thing to do now. But I, I, you know, back to your uh, something else I considered. Uh, you know, you're asking about what's the future of hydroelectric. Well, I, I shouldn't I, I say just hydroelectric. Hydro- it's just sort of my brain like automatically says electric, but it's more hydrological because well, it includes hydro- irrigation. The, the hydro. And, and the future of hydro. Just reservoirs for water drinking and everything. Right. All I think it. that hydroelectric actually has a future in Oregon and Washington, um, particularly because I think they, they appreciate it there more. Well, I don't know why, but they 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 will have an advantage in that. So the eastern the eastern regions of Oregon and Washington are actually growing paradoxically in some areas, and their cities are growing. Oh, it's cheaper, and so they will need you know they have huge amounts of water, and they in certain parts of the states, and they will have to get it to those areas, and they're going to need cheap power generation to continue fueling the growth of these regions that were almost always uninhabited. So it's sort of a natural pairing. I could actually see that the United I could see the United States building new water infrastructure uh, for the first time in a while to facilitate the growth of cities in eastern Oregon and Washington. I think that you will see some growth there. You'll see more Army Corps of Engineer activity. You'll see the Bureau of Reclamation activity. Uh, so if, if that's an, if that's an area that interests you, dear listener, then I would move to. Eastern Oregon and Washington, because I, I do believe you will see uh, more of that work being done. But in general, um, in the western part of the United States, outside of you know maybe some work here or there to facilitate the growth in uh, Wyoming or part or, you know a couple of the two main cities in Montana, uh, I don't really see uh, hydrological engineering having a bright future in the West. They're going to shift towards a model of maintenance and potentially even sort of um, planned demolition. I think will be the, the growth area of hydrological engineering will be demoli- or demolishing uh, existing or decaying infrastructure in certain places uh, for a variety of reasons. Yeah, it'll, it'll be like our highways, sort of like uh, we're, we're going to widen it, you know, by one lane and have to go through 50,000 environmental impact studies and town halls to get one little lane. Meanwhile, in China, you know, they're just building 50 lane <laughs> highways. And just, I think if you look empirically, just like just go on the Internet and look for uh, Ph.D. students and uh, published uh, research on site selection and stuff like that. And I've done this just in prep for the show uh, mainly, but it, it's all coming from Asia, Asia. It, it's China. I mean, I don't speak Chinese, but like for the, you know, I know about what they're doing over there. I mean, it's, it's obvious the three gorgeous dam is three times the size of grand Coulee, which used to be the biggest in the world. So just give you an idea. Uh, and China's huge. Uh, Zhang Zemin, you know, hydrological engineer, leader of the country. Uh, but the stuff I can read you know, is coming from former British colonies like Pakistan and India. 
and they got maps, map rooms full of maps of where they're going to put dams. So it's, it's coming from Asia and, you know, maybe Africa a little bit, but I don't know if they could do it themselves. Probably got to get some Chinese in there. Um, South America has built some big ones too. Amazon is obviously a huge basin of water. Uh, the Itaipu Dam, I don't know if that's directly, because it, it borders Paraguay, I believe, with Brazil and Paraguay. I don't know if that's actually Amazon, um, because the Amazon is sort of like the northern part of Brazil, and Paraguay, it's on the southern tip of it, if I'm not mistaken. But um, that might be a potential region. But I, I, I still put my money on Asia as being the, the primary place for this type of thing. Definitely. Well, to kind of wrap it up, uh, there's a there's a passage from the end of the uh, or towards the end of the epilogue of the book that uh, uh, I think is actually quite fitting. If you don't mind, if I read it, go for it. Like so many great and extravagant achievements, from the fountains of Rome to the federal deficit, the immense national dam construction program that allowed civilization to flourish in the deserts of the West contains the seeds of its disintegration. It is the old saw about an empire's rising higher and higher and having farther and farther to fall. Without the federal government, there would have been no Central Valley project. Without the project, California would have never amassed the wealth and creditworthiness to build its own state water project, which loosed a huge expansion of farming and urban development on the false promise of water that may never arrive. Without Uncle Sam masquerading from the 30s to the 70s as the godfather of limitless ambition and means, the seven Ogallala states might never have been chosen to exhaust their groundwater as precipitously as they have. They let themselves be convinced that the government would rescue them when the water ran out, just as the Colorado River Basin states foolishly persuaded themselves that Uncle Sam would augment their over-appropriated river when it ran dry. The government, the Bureau of Reclamation, and the Corps of Engineers first created a miraculous abundance of water, then sold it so cheaply that the mirage filled the horizon. Everywhere one turned, one saw water, cheap water, inexhaustible water, and when there were no more virgin rivers and aquifers to tap, the illusion was temporarily real. When the now desert is encroaching on the islands of green that have arisen within it and the once mighty bureau seems helpless to keep its advance at bay, the government is broke, the cost of rescue is mind-boggling, and the rest of the country, its infrastructure in varying stages of collapse, thinks the West has already had too much of a good thing. So the West is finally being forced back into solutions it should have tried decades ago. The cities are beginning to buy water from farmers. Groundwater regulation is no longer equated with heavy-handed Bolshevism. But to say that a new era has dawned is premature. Poll the rugged individualist members of the Sacramento Rotary Club. And a majority will say that their bankrupt government should by all means build them a $2.5 million Auburn Dam. I'm not sure if I am invited to comment. You can comment. Well, I think we mentioned on the show uh, about the Orville Dam, which was pretty much national news at the time. I want to say this was, um, 2019, maybe 2018. 
You remember that? Remember the the dam that broke in California? I watched footage of it. It was it was surreal. So there's a very good uh, YouTube channel. Um, I think it's called Practical Engineering. He actually went into like why that broke apart or why they just couldn't catch it in time, but um, it it's actually the Orville Dam is in Northern California, and its primary job is to act as a storage reservoir. I don't think it has any hydropower. It's more of just a, a storage tank for the Central Valley water that then gets sent down to Los Angeles 400 plus miles away. And uh, we were talking about how does Los Angeles exist? Uh, well, that is one example of how Los Angeles existed or used to exist. I don't actually know what the Orville Dam looks like today. I just remember the image of basically the uh, the spillway. So what happened was they had, uh, I guess, like an El Nino type thing where after four years of drought, they actually get some rain finally. And then it, it, it just goes nuts. And if I remember from the guy's video, he did a good job. But basically the, um, the concrete that they had poured on this emergency spillway for when they have large amounts of rain um, was basically getting undercut. I can't remember why, um, but I think it was just leaking through. I think like they, they poured it in sections and then like water was dripping underneath it and then basically washing out the, the dirt underneath it to the point where it, it collapsed. And then once you have rushing water hitting the earth, it's actually just going to compound the problem because the earth just washes away without having that concrete skin on it. And so then the whole hillside effectively uh, was uh, was at risk of being washed away and then the whole dam collapsing. <laughs> and so eventually they they f- got it to the point where it was not such a, a huge amount of water to deal with. But um, I think they decided to release and then it, it made it worse. And then it basically just created this catastrophe. So, um, fortunately it didn't actually collapse completely though. And my question was like, well, what did they do to fix it? And I think they probably just like built, poured better concrete. Um, but, um, cause the original design, like in theory provided there wasn't like a break in the spillway was, was sufficient, but that probably cost more or close to the amount that it cost back in the day, at least before inflation of what it took to build the whole dam. And then if you adjust for inflation, it probably is a a pretty big chunk because just everything is more expensive now because people are red tape to death. And I don't know. I mean, there's so many like explanations for why things are just worse, but um, I think that's a, it's a telling sign for the state of our water infrastructure sadly, at least in places like California, where there's not enough political will, there's not enough coordination, at least. Um, There's just not enough understanding, frankly, or appreciation of these types of uh, infrastructure. Um, And people are busy, and they don't have the mind to really focus on the more practical things. And so I think a lot of our fundamentals are continuing to be eroded, as we've seen with the hollowing out of the economy in general, people don't understand where their, their food even comes from. 
people were panicking about all these like fires and I think it's a thing, but I, I still don't think we're going to run out of food. I mean, it's, you know, maybe, you know, who knows? I wouldn't put it past this country at this point that it might happen. Um, probably not in the near future, but, you know, it's it's possible. But in terms of uh, things that people don't really know about, uh, I, I think it's a, it's a worse issue because it's not as obvious. People take electricity, they take water, they take sewer, you know, which is not the same thing, by the way. It's, it's like, it, it's a whole different system where you have treatment plants and, and discharges and everything the garbage collection um internet all this infrastructure stuff that is sort of hidden from normal people who don't do physical things for for work and a living um i think is at risk because it, it just i think the hydrological one is a good example of it but i think it's indicative of a lot a larger phenomenon going on in a deindustrialized society like the United States where people don't have everyday contact with the fundamental underpinnings of how things work. And therefore they don't elect people or they don't support people, uh, that have an understanding, uh, or even just an appreciation of these types of things. I mean, back in the day, like they used to fight for water projects, like in Congress, can you even imagine them talking about that, let alone fighting about it? Like, can you imagine uh, AOC or whatever the dumb Republicans have to offer to, to counter that, even understanding what these things are? I can't. I mean, they used to talk about the trade deficit. That stopped in the 90s. But they used to talk about it in the 80s when people still had factory jobs and still affected people directly, not indirectly with all this like sort of outsourcing and then like eventual like supply chain issues when people can't even make a stupid uh, face mask, you know, during this covid thing um i think i think unfortunately it's it's going to take more horrible dams for people to to wake up and it's sad i mean people who study the energy market it's the same thing it's like they're they're in california they're calling for the closures of all their nuclear facilities but they're supposed to be all green but they don't realize that that's one of the greenest sources out there it's actually one of the safest too. If you actually look at the number of deaths attributed to nuclear versus uh, coal power, you know, pollution and everything like that associated with that and the, um, you know, the lung cancer and other types of cancers and things like that, that are attributable to fossil fuels and, Oh, well, solar is fine. Oh, well, you know, your supply chains in China, by the way. And, uh, you know, polysilicon is, is made with slave labor in Western China where they don't talk about it and, uh, well, Biden wants to sanction them now. And so we're not going to get solar panels anymore. And so, well, we're going to end up burning more natural gas and whatever else we can find. Well, we don't have any hydro left because that's, that's all been shut down because, uh, it hurt the fish and, uh, and whatnot. And so Americans are very ignorant. They think they're, they're, they're really clever, but they, they just, and when it comes to things that, you know, in my book are actually important, they, they have a horrible understanding of how things work. And it's not just America. I mean, this is true in Europe too. I mean, like they, they polled the French who has like the largest nuclear fleet in the world as a percentage of, uh, their, uh, their energy mix. And they asked, uh, the French, like do nuclear power plants emit carbon dioxide? I think something like 86% of them said yes, because they look at the cooling towers and they see some like steam coming off of it or something or, or water vapor clouds. And they think that's, that's CO2. I mean, you can't even see CO2. I mean, but anyway, it just shows how ignorant people are. So in, 
in societies that again they don't they don't have a physical connection with how things are uh, are produced and and delivered and so I don't know man I don't know I just I I just I've I've given up uh, trying to like explain this to people who don't seem to care um I wish they did and I appreciate people who try to but it's it's sort of a fool's errand because the the return on your time invested in that is pretty bad and I would recommend anybody listening to this who doesn't have a better understanding of these topics to try to educate yourself. Number one, comment, you know, help me understand how run of the river dams versus uh, gravity dams work better. Help me understand better. But aside from just understanding, um, do something about it. I mean, you know, vote harder, right? Like, I, I don't think that's going to fix it. I think our politicians are too dumb. And, the, and by the way, most of the electorate is too dumb to elect the right politicians, you know, who are all lawyers to begin with. And so they don't even understand what they're doing. The last engineer who was in Congress was this guy named, uh, that I knew of at least, was this guy named Sununu. And he was like from Massachusetts. That was like during like the Bush, like the first Bush administration. <laughs> like none of these guys know what they're doing, and it's scary. And so, what do you do? Educate yourself, get your own, you know, systems that you can trust. Build it if you can. Um, have your own water. I, I recommend having a backup alternative power source. Also. Uh, and just, just keep in mind that, you know, we're, we're on a ship of the damned and the, and ship of the fools. And, uh, you know, we're, we're going to see more and more of these like little dumb examples cropping up, but I just, I sort of like view it as background radiation at this point. I just work it into the equation. They don't surprise me. Um, so I think that's the best strategy going forward is just to expect it. Don't wait for other people to fix it for you because they're they're too lazy or ignorant to to do it. And um, and I think you just you need to do your best for you and your family, um, which is sad because I mean at scale, you know this country has done some amazing things. But if we're all sort of like uh, as I say, rubbing sticks to, you know in the woods to keep warm, that's not a great nation. I mean it's basically a nation of survivors. But it's better to survive than be dead. Uh, or uh, drowned to death from some dam breaking or something, and so it's it, it, it's 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 sadly one of the best options I think that we can hope for realistically at the moment. And you know, then if if everything falls apart and we rebuild our society, and maybe in a hundred years, maybe we can do big things again, which is much more effective use of our time and energy. But until then, I, I don't know what what else we're going to do. Um, Hans, you got any better solutions? tear down all the dams break up all the reservoirs start over well i think you're going to see a lot of people die if you do that which i think we've established pretty clearly with all the food and let's just flood rip control this band, let's pretty, just rip this band-aid off you sound like nick now <laughs> <laughs> yeah our uh, our friend is not here so i have to i have to play the part uh, yeah no, but uh, you know, there is no, there is no great solution. Uh, I think that if the need arises, there will be incremental amounts of work done to sort of maintain the status quo in the American West. But um, the the limits to growth have arrived, 
And unless there is uh, a, a larger capability to perform even more breathtaking amounts of uh, mega projects and industrial coordination and government coordination um, and perhaps a bit of luck with some wet years, uh, I don't think that this expansion into the American West will, uh, will sustain itself in the long term, perhaps over a century. And... This was a this is a bold attempt at civilization where no one could have done it, uh, but it was only a bold attempt. Thank you. 